Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter One of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter One The Fenchurch Street Mystery. The man in the corner pushed aside his glass and leant across the table. Mysteries, he commented. There is no such thing as a mystery in connection with any crime, provided intelligence is brought to bear upon its investigation. Very much astonished, Polly Burton looked over the top of her newspaper and fixed a pair of very severe, coldly inquiring brown eyes upon him. She had disapproved of the man from the instant when he shuffled across the shop and sat down opposite to her, at the same marble-topped table which already held her large coffee, three pence, her roll and butter, two pence, and plate of tongue, six pence. Now this particular corner, this very same table, that special view of the magnificent marble hall, known as the Norfolk Street branch of the Aerated Bread Company's depots, were Polly's own corner, table, and view. Here she had partaken of eleven pennyworth of luncheon and one pennyworth of daily information ever since that glorious, never-to-be-forgotten day when she was enrolled on the staff of the Evening Observer, we'll call it that, if you please, and became a member of that illustrious and world-famed organization known as the British Press. She was a personality, was Miss Burton of the Evening Observer. Her cards were printed thus, Miss Mary J. Burton, Evening Observer. She had interviewed Miss Ellen Terry and the Bishop of Madagascar, Mr. Seymour Hicks, and the Chief Commissioner of Police. She had been present at the last Marlborough House garden party, in the cloakroom, that is to say, where she caught sight of Lady Thingamy's hat, Miss What-You-May-Call-It's Sunshade, and of various other things, modistical or fashionable, all of which were duly described under the heading Royalty in Dress, in the early afternoon edition of the Evening Observer. The article itself is signed M.J.B., and is to be found in the files of that leading halfpenny worth. For these reasons, and for various others, too, Polly felt irate with the man in the corner, and told him so with her eyes, so plainly as any pair of brown eyes can speak. She had been reading an article in the Daily Telegraph. The article was palpitatingly interesting. Had Polly been commenting audibly upon it? Certain it is that the man over there had spoken in direct answer to her thoughts. She looked at him and frowned. The next moment she smiled. Miss Burton, of the Evening Observer, had a keen sense of humor, which two years' association with the British press had not succeeded in destroying and the appearance of the man was sufficient to tickle the most ultra-morose fancy. 
Polly thought to herself that she had never seen anyone so pale, so thin, with such funny light-colored hair brushed very smooth across the top of a very obviously bald crown. He looked so timid and nervous as he fidgeted incessantly with a piece of string, his long, lean, and trembling fingers tying and untying it into knots of wonderful and complicated proportions. Having carefully studied every detail of the quaint personality, Polly felt more amiable. "'And yet,' she remarked kindly but authoritatively, "'this article, in an otherwise well-informed journal, will tell you that, even within the last year, no fewer than six crimes have completely baffled the police, and the perpetrators of them are still at large.' "'Pardon me,' he said gently. "'I never for a moment ventured to suggest that there were no mysteries to the police.' I merely remarked that there were none where intelligence was brought to bear upon the investigation of crime. "'Not even in the Fenchurch Street mystery, I suppose?' she asked sarcastically. "'Least of all in the so-called Fenchurch Street mystery,' he replied quietly. Now the Fenchurch Street mystery, as that extraordinary crime had popularly been called, had puzzled, as Polly well knew, the brains of every thinking man and woman for the last twelve months. It had puzzled her not inconsiderably. She had been interested, fascinated. She had studied the case, formed her own theories, thought about it all often, and often had even written one or two letters to the press on the subject, suggesting, arguing, hinting at possibilities and probabilities, adducing proofs which other amateur detectives were equally ready to refute. The attitude of that timid man in the corner, therefore, was peculiarly exasperating, and she retorted with sarcasm destined to completely annihilate her self-complacent interlocutor. "'What a pity it is, in that case, that you do not offer your priceless services to our misguided, though well-meaning police.' "'Isn't it?' he replied with perfect good humour. "'Well, you know, for one thing I doubt if they would accept them, and in the second place my inclinations and my duty would, were I to become an active member of the detective force, nearly always be in direct conflict. As often as not, my sympathies go to the criminal who is clever and astute enough to lead our entire police force by the nose. "'I don't know how much of the case you remember,' he went on quietly. "'It certainly at first began even to puzzle me. On the twelfth of last December a woman, poorly dressed, but with an unmistakable air of having seen better days, gave information at Scotland Yard of the disappearance of her husband, William Kershaw, of no occupation, and apparently of no fixed abode. She was accompanied by a friend, a fat, oily-looking German, and between them they told a tale which set the police immediately on the move. It appears that on the 10th of December, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Karl Müller, the German, called on his friend, William Kershaw, for the purpose of collecting a small debt, some ten pounds or so, which the latter owed him. On arriving at the squalid lodging in Charlotte Street, Fitzroy Square, he found William Kershaw in a state of wild excitement, and his wife in tears. Müller attempted to state the object of his visit, but Kershaw, with wild gestures, waved him aside, and, in his own words, flabbergasted him by asking him point-blank for another loan of two pounds, which sum, he declared, would be the means of a speedy fortune for himself and the friend who would help him in his need. After a quarter of an hour spent in obscure hints, Kershaw, finding the cautious German obdurate, decided to let him into the secret plan, which, he averred, would place thousands into their hands. Instinctively, Polly had put down her paper, the mild stranger, with his nervous air and timid, watery eyes, had a peculiar way of telling his tale, which somehow fascinated her. "'I don't know,' he resumed, "'if you remember the story which the German told to the police, and which was corroborated in every detail by the wife or widow. 
Briefly, it was this. Some thirty years previously, Kershaw, then twenty years of age, and a medical student at one of the London hospitals, had a chum named Barker, with whom he roomed together with another. The latter, so it appears, brought home one evening a very considerable sum of money, which he had won on the turf, and the following morning he was found murdered in his bed. Kershaw, fortunately for himself, was able to prove a conclusive alibi. He had spent the night on duty at the hospital. As for Barker, he had disappeared, that is to say, as far as the police were concerned, but not as far as the watchful eyes of his friend Kershaw were able to spy, at least so the latter said. Barker was cleverly contrived to get away out of the country, and after sundry vicissitudes finally settled down at Vladivostok in eastern Siberia, where, under the assumed name of Smethurst, he built up an enormous fortune by trading in furs. Now, mind you, everyone knows Smethurst, the Siberian millionaire. Kershaw's story, that he had once been called Barker, and had committed a murder thirty years ago, was never proved, was it? I am merely telling you what Kershaw said to his friend the German, and to his wife, on that memorable afternoon of December the 10th. According to him, Smethurst had made one gigantic mistake in his clever career. He had on four occasions written to his late friend, William Kershaw. Two of these letters had no bearing on the case, since they were written more than twenty-five years ago, and Kershaw, moreover, had lost them, so he said, long ago. According to him, however, the first of these letters was written when Smethurst, alias Barker, had spent all the money he had obtained from the crime, and found himself destitute in New York. Kershaw, then in fairly prosperous circumstances, sent him a ten-pound note for the sake of old times. The second, when the tables had turned, and Kershaw had begun to go downhill, Smethurst, as he then already called himself, sent his whilom friend fifty pounds. After that, as Muller gathered, Kershaw had made sundry demands on Smethurst's ever-increasing purse, and had accompanied these demands by various threats, which, considering the distant country in which the millionaire lived, were worse than futile. But now the climax had come, and Kershaw, after a final moment of hesitation, handed over to his German friend the two last letters purporting to have been written by Smethurst, and which, if you remember, played such an important part in that mysterious story of this extraordinary crime. I have a copy of both these letters here, added the man in the corner, as he took out a piece of paper from a very worn-out pocket-book, and, unfolding it very deliberately, he began to read. Sir, your preposterous demands for money are wholly unwarrantable. I have already helped you quite as much as you deserve. However, for the sake of old times, and because you once helped me when I was in terrible difficulty, I am willing to once more let you impose upon my good nature. A friend of mine here, a Russian merchant, to whom I have sold my business, starts in a few days for an extended tour to many European and Asiatic ports in his yacht, and has invited me to accompany him as far as England. Being tired of foreign parts, and desirous of seeing the old country once again, after thirty years' absence, I have decided to accept his invitation. I don't know when we may actually be in Europe, but I promise you that as soon as we touch a suitable port I will write to you again, making an appointment for you to see me in London. But remember, if your demands are too preposterous, I will not for a moment listen to them, and that I am the last man in the world to submit to persistent and unwarranted blackmail. I am, sir, yours truly, Francis Smethurst. The second letter was dated from Southampton, continued the old man in the corner calmly, and, curiously enough, was the only letter which Kershaw professed to have received from Smethurst of which he had kept the envelope, and which was dated. It was quite brief, he added, referring once more to his piece of paper. Dear sir, 
Referring to my letter of a few weeks ago, I wish to inform you that the Tsarsko Silo will touch at Tilbury on Tuesday next, the 10th. I shall land there, and immediately go up to London by the first train I can get. If you like, you may meet me at Fenchurch Street Station in the first-class waiting room in the late afternoon. Since I surmise that after thirty years' absence my face may not be familiar to you, I may as well tell you that you will recognize me by a heavy astrakhan fur coat which I shall wear, together with a cap of the same. You may then introduce yourself to me, and I will personally listen to what you may have to say. Yours faithfully, Francis Smethurst. It was this last letter which caused William Kershaw's excitement and his wife's tears. In the German's own word, he was walking up and down the room like a wild beast, gesticulating wildly and muttering sundry exclamations. Mrs. Kershaw, however, was full of apprehension. She mistrusted the man from foreign parts, who, according to her husband's story, had already one crime upon his conscience, who might, she feared, risk another in order to be rid of a dangerous enemy. Woman-like she thought the scheme a dishonorable one, but the law she knew is severe on the blackmailer. The assignation might be a cunning trap. In any case, it was a curious one. Why, she argued, did not Smethurst elect to see Kershaw at his hotel the following day? A thousand whys and wherefores made her anxious, but the fat German had been won over by Kershaw's visions of untold gold, held tantalizingly before his eyes. He had lent the necessary two pounds, with which his friend intended to tidy himself up a bit before he went to meet his friend the millionaire. Half an hour afterwards Kershaw left his lodgings, and that was the last the unfortunate woman saw of her husband, or Mueller, the German, of his friend. Anxiously his wife waited that night, but he did not return. The next day she seems to have spent in making purposeless and futile inquiries about the neighborhood of Fenchurch Street, and on the twelfth she went to Scotland Yard, gave what particulars she knew, and placed in the hands of the police the two letters written by Smethurst. End of chapter 1
at the Hotel Cecil. To confess the truth, at this point I was not a little puzzled. Mrs. Kershaw's story and Smethurst's letters had both found their way into the papers, and following my usual method, mind you, I am only an amateur, I tried to reason out a case for the love of the thing, I sought about for a motive for the crime which the police declared Smethurst had committed. To effectually get rid of a dangerous blackmailer was the generally accepted theory. Well, did it ever strike you how paltry that motive really was? Miss Polly had to confess, however, that it had never struck her in that light. Surely a man who has succeeded in building up an immense fortune by his own individual efforts was not the sort of fool to believe that he had anything to fear from a man like Kershaw. He must have known that Kershaw had no damning proofs against him, not enough to hang him anyway. Have you ever seen Smethurst? he added, as he once more fumbled in his pocket-book. Polly replied that she had seen Smethurst's picture in the illustrated papers at the time. Then he added, placing a small photograph before her, "'What strikes you most about the face?' "'Well, I think it's strange, astonished expression, due to the total absence of eyebrows and the funny foreign cut of the hair. So close that it almost looks as if it had been shaved. Exactly. That is what struck me most when I elbowed my way into the court that morning and first caught sight of the millionaire in the dock. He was a tall, soldierly-looking man, upright in stature, his face very bronzed and tanned. He wore neither moustache nor beard. His hair was cropped quite close to his head, like a Frenchman's. But, of course, what was so very remarkable about him was that total absence of eyebrows and even eyelashes, which gave the face such a peculiar appearance, as you say, a perpetually astonished look. He seemed, however, wonderfully calm. He had been accommodated with a chair in the dock, being a millionaire, and chatted pleasantly with his lawyer, Sir Arthur Inglewood, in the intervals between the calling of the several witnesses for the prosecution, whilst during the examination of these witnesses he sat quite placidly, with his head shaded by his hand. Mueller and Mrs. Kershaw repeated the story which they had already told to the police. I think you said that you were not able, owing to the pressure of work, to go to the court that day, and hear the case, so perhaps you have no recollection of Mrs. Kershaw. No? Ah, well, here is a snapshot I managed to get of her once. That is her, exactly as she stood in the box, overdressed in elaborate crepe, with a bonnet which once had contained pink roses, and to which a remnant of pink petals still clung obtrusively amidst the deep black. She would not look at the prisoner, and turned her head resolutely towards the magistrate. I fancy she had been fond of that vagabond husband of hers. An enormous wedding ring encircled her finger, and that, too, was swathed in black. She firmly believed that Kershaw's murderer sat there in the dock, and she literally flaunted her grief before him. I was indescribably sorry for her. As for Mueller, he was just fat, oily, pompous, conscious of his own importance as a witness. His fat fingers, covered with brass rings, gripped the two incriminating letters which he had identified. They were his passports, as it were, to a delightful land of importance and notoriety. Sir Arthur Inglewood, I think, disappointed him by stating that he had no questions to ask of him. Mueller had been brimful of answers, ready with the most perfect indictment, the most elaborate accusations against the bloated millionaire who had decoyed his dear friend Kershaw and murdered him in heaven knows what and out-of-the-way corner of the East End. After this, however, the excitement grew apace. Mueller had been dismissed and had retired from the court altogether, leading away Mrs. Kershaw, who had completely broken down. Constable D-21 was giving evidence as to the arrest in the meanwhile. The prisoner, he said, had seemed completely taken by surprise, not understanding the cause or history of the accusation against him. However, when put in full possession of the facts, and realizing, no doubt, 
the absolute futility of any resistance, he had quietly enough followed the constable into the cab. No one at the fashionable and crowded Hotel Cecil had even suspected that anything unusual had occurred. Then a gigantic sigh of expectancy came up from every one of the spectators. The fun was about to begin. James Buckland, a porter at Fenchurch Street Railway Station, had just sworn to tell all the truth, etc. After all, it did not amount to much. He said that at six o'clock in the afternoon of December the 10th, in the midst of one of the densest fogs he ever remembers, the 5.5 from Tilbury steamed into the station, being just about an hour late. He was on the arrival platform, and was hailed by a passenger in the first-class carriage. He could see very little of him beyond an enormous black fur coat and a travelling cap of fur also. The passenger had a quantity of luggage, all marked F.S., and he directed James Buckland to place it all upon a four-wheel cab, with the exception of a small handbag, which he carried himself. Having seen that all his luggage was safely bestowed, the stranger in the fur coat paid the porter, and telling the cabman to wait until he returned, he walked away in the direction of the waiting-rooms, still carrying his small handbag. "'I stayed for a bit,' added James Buckland, "'talking to the driver about the fog and that. Then I went about my business, seeing that the local from South End had been signalled.' The prosecution insisted most strongly upon the hour that the stranger in the fur coat, having seen to his luggage, walked away towards the waiting-rooms. The porter was emphatic. It was not a minute later than 6.15, he averred. Sir Arthur Inglewood still had no question to ask, and the driver of the cab was called. He corroborated the evidence of James Buckland as to the hour when the gentleman in the fur coat had engaged him, and having filled his cab in and out with luggage, had told him to wait. And the cabbie did wait. He waited in the dense fog, until he was tired, until he seriously thought of depositing all the luggage in the lost property office, and of looking out for another fare, waited until at last, at a quarter before nine, whom should he see walking hurriedly toward his cab but the gentleman in the fur coat and cap, who got in quickly and told the driver to take him at once to the Hotel Cecil. This, Cabby declared, had occurred at a quarter before nine. Still, Sir Arthur Inglewood made no comment, and Mr. Francis Smethurst, in the crowded stuffy court, had calmly dropped to sleep. The next witness, Constable Thomas Taylor, had noticed a shabbily dressed individual with shaggy hair and beard loafing about the station and waiting-rooms in the afternoon of December the 10th. He seemed to be watching the arrival platform of the Tilbury and South End trains. Two separate and independent witnesses, cleverly unearthed by the police, had seen this same shabbily dressed individual stroll into the first-class waiting-room at about 6.15 on Wednesday, December the 10th, and go straight up to a gentleman in a heavy fur coat and cap, who had also just come into the room. The two talked together for a while, no one heard what they said, but presently they walked off together, no one seemed to know in which direction. Francis Smethurst was rousing himself from his apathy. He whispered to his lawyer, who nodded with a bland smile of encouragement. The employees of the Hotel Cecil gave evidence as to the arrival of Mr. Smethurst at about 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday, December the 10th, in a cab, with a quantity of luggage, and this closed the case for the prosecution. Everybody in that court already saw Smethurst mounting the gallows. It was uninterested curiosity which caused the elegant audience to wait and hear what Sir Arthur Inglewood had to say. He, of course, is the most fashionable man in the law at the present moment. His lolling attitudes, his drawling speech, are quite the rage, and imitated by the gilded youth of society. Even at this moment, when the Siberian millionaire's neck literally and metaphorically hung in the balance, 
An expectant titter went round the fair spectators as Sir Arthur stretched out his loose limbs and lounged across the table. He waited to make his effect. Sir Arthur is a born actor, and there is no doubt that he made it when in his slowest, most drawly tones he said quietly, "'With regard to this alleged murder of one William Kershaw, on Wednesday, December the 10th, between 6.15 and 8.45 p.m., Your Honour, I now propose to call two witnesses, who saw this same William Kershaw alive on Tuesday afternoon, December the 16th, that is to say, six days after the supposed murder. It was as if a bombshell had exploded in the court. Even His Honour was aghast, and I am sure the lady next to me only recovered from the shock of the surprise in order to wonder whether she needed to put off her dinner-party after all. "'As for me,' added the man in the corner, with that strange mixture of nervousness and self-complacency which had set Miss Polly Burton wondering, "'Well, you see, I had made up my mind long ago where the hitch lay in this particular case, and I was not so surprised as some of the others. Perhaps you remember the wonderful development of the case, which so completely mystified the police, and in fact everybody except myself.' Turiani and a waiter at his hotel in the commercial road both deposed that at about 3.30 p.m. on December the 10th, a shabbily dressed individual lolled into the coffee-room and ordered some tea. He was pleasant enough and talkative, told the waiter that his name was William Kershaw, that very soon all London would be talking about him, as he was about, through an unexpected stroke of good fortune, to become a very rich man, and so on and so on, nonsense without end. When he had finished his tea, he lolled out again, but no sooner had he disappeared down a turning of the road than the waiter discovered an old umbrella, left behind accidentally by the shabby, talkative individual. As is the custom in his highly respectable restaurant, Signor Torriani put the umbrella carefully away in his office, on the chance of his customer calling to claim it when he had discovered his loss. And sure enough, nearly a week later, on Tuesday the 16th, at about 1 p.m., the same shabbily dressed individual called and asked for his umbrella. He had some lunch, chatted once again to the waiter. Signor Torriani and the waiter gave a description of William Kershaw, which coincided exactly with that given by Mrs. Kershaw of her husband. Oddly enough, he seemed to be a very absent-minded sort of person, for on this second occasion no sooner had he left than the waiter found a pocket-book in the coffee-room, underneath the table. It contained sundry letters and bills, all addressed to William Kershaw. This pocket-book was produced, and Carl Mueller, who had returned to the court, easily identified it as having belonged to his dear and lamented friend, William. This was the first blow to the case against the accused. It was a pretty stiff one, you will admit. Already it had begun to collapse like a house of cards. Still there was the assignation and the undisputed meeting between Smethurst and Kershaw, and those two and a half hours of a foggy evening to satisfactorily account for. The man in the corner made a long pause, keeping the girl on tenter-hooks. He had fidgeted with his bit of string till there was not an inch of it free from the most complicated and elaborate knots. "'I assure you,' he resumed at last, "'that at that very moment the whole mystery was to me as clear as daylight. I only marvelled how his honour could waste his time and mine by putting what he thought were searching questions to the accused relating to his past. Francis Smethurst, who had quite shaken off his somnolence, spoke with a curious nasal twang, and with an almost imperceptible sousson of foreign accent. He calmly denied Kershaw's version of his past, declared that he had never been called Barker, and certainly never been mixed up in any murder case thirty years ago. 
"'But you knew this man Kershaw, persisted his honour, since you wrote to him?' "'Pardon me, your honour,' said the accused quietly. "'I have never, to my knowledge, seen this man Kershaw, and I can swear that I never wrote to him.' "'Never wrote to him,' retorted his honour warningly. "'That is a strange assertion to make when I have two of your letters to him in my hands at the present moment.' "'I never wrote those letters, your honour,' persisted the accused quietly. "'They are not in my handwriting.' "'Which we can easily prove,' came in Sir Arthur Inglewood's drawly tones, as he handed up a packet to his honour. "'Here are a number of letters written by my client, since he has landed in this country, some of which were written under my very eyes.' As Sir Arthur Englewood had said, this could be easily proved, and the prisoner, at his honour's request, scribbled a few lines, together with his signature, several times upon a sheet of note-paper. It was easy to read upon the magistrate's astounded countenance that there was not the slightest similarity in the two handwritings. A fresh mystery had cropped up. Who, then, had made the assignation with William Kershaw at Fenchurch Street Railway Station? The prisoner gave a fairly satisfactory account of the employment of his time since his landing in England. "'I came over on the Tarsco Silo,' he said, "'a yacht belonging to a friend of mine. When we arrived at the mouth of the Thames, there was such a dense fog that it was twenty-four hours before it was thought safe for me to land. My friend, who is a Russian, would not land at all. He was regularly frightened at this land of fogs. He was going on to Madeira immediately. I actually landed on Tuesday, the 10th, and took a train at once for town. I did see to my luggage and a cab, as the porter and driver told your honour. Then I tried to find my way up to a refreshment room where I could get a glass of wine. I drifted into the waiting-room, and there I was accosted by a shabbily-dressed individual who began telling me a piteous tale. Who he was, I do not know. He said he was an old soldier who had served his country faithfully, and had been left to starve. He begged of me to accompany him to his lodgings, where I could see his wife and starving children, and verify the truth and piteousness of his tale. "'Well, your honour,' added the prisoner with noble frankness, "'it was my first day in the old country.' I had come back after thirty years with my pockets full of gold, and this was the first sad tale I had heard. But I am a business man, and did not want to be exactly done in the eye. I followed the man through the fog, out into the streets. He walked silently by my side for a time. I had not a notion where I was. Suddenly I turned to him with some question, and realized in a moment that my gentleman had given me the slip. Finding probably that I would not part with my money till I had seen the starving wife and children, he left me to my fate and went in search of more willing bait. The place where I found myself was dismal and deserted. I could see no trace of cab or omnibus. I retraced my steps and tried to find my way back to the station, only to find myself in worse and more deserted neighbourhoods. I became hopelessly lost and fogged. I don't wonder that two and a half hours elapsed while I thus wandered on in the dark and deserted streets. My sole astonishment is that I ever found the station at all that night, or rather close to it a policeman who showed me the way. "'But how do you account for Kershaw knowing all your movements?' still persisted his honour. "'And his knowing the exact date of your arrival in England, how do you account for these two letters, in fact?' "'I cannot account for it or them, your honour,' replied the prisoner quietly. "'I have proven to you, have I not, that I never wrote those letters, and that the man, er, Kershaw is his name, was not murdered by me? Can you tell me of anyone here or abroad who might have heard of your movements, or of the date of your arrival?' My late employees at Vladivostok, of course, knew of my departure, but none of them could have written these letters, since none of them know a word of English. Then you can throw no light upon these mysterious letters? You cannot help the police in any way towards the clearing up of this strange affair? 
The affair is as mysterious to me as to your honour and to the police of this country. Francis Methurst was discharged, of course. There was no semblance of evidence against him sufficient to commit him for trial. The two overwhelming points of his defence, which had completely routed the prosecution, were, firstly, the proof that he had never written the letters making the assignation, and, secondly, the fact that the man supposed to have been murdered on the 10th was seen to be alive and well on the 16th. But then, who in the world was the mysterious individual who had apprised Kershaw of the movements of Smethurst, the millionaire? End of chapter 2《Chapters Three and Four of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter Three His Deduction. The old man in the corner cocked his funny thin head on one side and looked at Polly. Then he took up his beloved bit of string and deliberately untied every knot he had made in it. When it was quite smooth, he laid it out upon the table. "'I will take you, if you like, point by point, along the line of reasoning which I followed myself, and which will inevitably lead you, as it led me, to the only possible solution of the mystery. First, take this point,' he said with nervous restlessness, once more taking up his bit of string, and forming, with each point raised, a series of knots which would have shamed a navigating instructor. Obviously it was impossible for Kershaw not to have been acquainted with Smethurst, since he was fully apprised of the latter's arrival in England by two letters. Now it was clear to me from the first that no one could have written those two letters except Smethurst. You will argue that those two letters were proved not to have been written by the man in the dock. Exactly. Remember, Kershaw was a careless man. He had lost both envelopes. To him they were insignificant. Now it was never disproved that those letters were written by Smethurst. But, suggested Polly, wait a minute, he interrupted, while not number two appeared upon the scene. It was proved that six days after the murder, William Kershaw was alive, and visited the Torriani Hotel, where already he was known, and where he conveniently left a pocket-book behind, so that there should be no mistake as to his identity. But it was never questioned where Mr. Francis Smethurst, the millionaire, happened to spend that very same afternoon. "'Surely you don't mean,' gasped the girl. "'One moment, please,' he added triumphantly. "'How did it all come about that the landlord of the Torriani Hotel was brought into court at all? How did Sir Arthur Inglewood, or rather his client, know that William Kershaw had on those two memorable occasions visited the hotel, and that its landlord could bring such convincing evidence forward that would forever exonerate the millionaire from the imputation of murder?' Surely, I argued, the usual means, the police. The police had kept the whole affair very dark until the arrest at the Hotel Cecil. They did not put into the papers the usual, if anyone happens to know of the whereabouts, etc., etc., had the landlord of that hotel heard of the disappearance of Kershaw through the usual channels, he would have put himself in communication with the police. Sir Arthur Inglewood produced him. How did Sir Arthur Inglewood come on his track? Surely you don't mean... Point number four he resumed imperturbably. Mrs. Kershaw was never requested to produce a specimen of her husband's handwriting. Why? Because the police, clever as you say they are, never started on the right tack. They believed William Kershaw to have been murdered. They looked for William Kershaw. On December 31st, what was presumed to be the body of William Kershaw was found by two lightermen. I have shown you a photograph of the place where it was found. 
Dark and deserted it is in all conscience, is it not? Just the place where a bully and a coward could decoy an unsuspecting stranger, murder him first, then rob him of his valuables, his papers, his very identity, and leave him there to rot. The body was found in a disused barge, which had been moored some time against the wall at the foot of these steps. It was in the last stages of decomposition, and of course could not be identified, but the police would have it that it was the body of William Kershaw. It never entered their heads that it was the body of Francis Smethurst, and that William Kershaw was his murderer. Ah, it was cleverly, artistically conceived. Kershaw is a genius. Think of it all. His disguise. Kershaw had a shaggy beard, hair and moustache. He shaved up to his very eyebrows. No wonder that even his wife did not recognize him across the court, and remember she never saw much of his face while he stood in the dock. Kershaw was shabby, slouchy, he stooped. Smethurst, the millionaire, might have served in the Prussian army. Then that lovely trait about going to revisit the Torriani Hotel. Just a few days' grace, in order to purchase moustache and beard and wig, exactly similar to what he had himself shaved off. Making up to look like himself, splendid. Then leaving the pocket-book behind. He, he, he. Kershaw was not murdered. Of course not. He called at the Torriani Hotel, six days after the murder, whilst Mr. Smethurst, the millionaire, hobnob in the park with duchesses. Hang such a man! Fie! He fumbled for his hat. With nervous, trembling fingers, he held it deferentially in his hand whilst he rose from the table. Polly watched him as he strode up to the desk and paid two pence for his glass of milk and his bun. Soon he disappeared through the shop, while she still found herself hopelessly bewildered, with a number of snapshot photographs before her, still staring at a long piece of string, smothered from end to end in a series of knots, as bewildering, as irritating, as puzzling as the man who had lately sat in the corner. CHAPTER Four, THE ROBBERY IN Phillimore TERRACE Whether Miss Polly Burton really did expect to see the man in the corner that Saturday afternoon, t'were difficult to say. Certain it is that when she found her way to the table close by the window, and realized that he was not there, she felt conscious of an overwhelming sense of disappointment and yet during the whole of the week she had, with more pride than wisdom, avoided this particular ABC shop. "'I thought you would not keep away very long,' said a quiet voice close to her ear. She nearly lost her balance. Where in the world had he come from? She certainly had not heard the slightest sound, and yet there he sat in the corner, like a veritable jack-in-the-box, his mild blue eyes staring apologetically at her, his nervous fingers toying with the inevitable bit of string. The waitress brought him his glass of milk and a cheesecake. He ate it in silence, while his piece of string lay idly beside him on the table. When he had finished, he fumbled in his capacious pockets, and drew out the inevitable pocket-book. Placing a small photograph before the girl, he said quietly, "'That is the back of the houses in Phillimore Terrace, which overlook Adam and Eve views.' She looked at the photograph, then at him, with a kindly look of indulgent expectancy. You will notice that the row of back gardens have each an exit into the mews. These mews are built in the shape of a capital F. The photograph is taken, looking straight down the short horizontal line, which ends, as you see, in a cul-de-sac. The bottom of the vertical line turns into Fillmore Terrace, and the end of the upper long horizontal line into High Street, Kensington. Now, on that particular night, or rather early morning, of January 15th, Constable D-21, 
having turned into the mews from Phillimore Terrace, stood for a moment at the angle formed by the long vertical artery of the mews and the short horizontal one which, as I observed before, looks onto the back gardens of the terrace houses and ends in a cul-de-sac. How long D-21 stood at that particular corner he could not exactly say, but he thinks it must have been three or four minutes before he noticed a suspicious-looking individual shambling along under the shadow of the garden walls. He was working his way cautiously in the direction of the cul-de-sac, and D-21, also keeping well within the shadow, went noiselessly after him. He had almost overtaken him, was, in fact, not more than thirty yards from him, when from out of one of the two end houses, number 22 Phillimore Terrace, in fact, a man, in nothing but his nightshirt, rushed out excitedly, and, before D-21 had time to intervene, literally threw himself upon the suspected individual, rolling over and over with him on the hard cobblestones, and frantically shrieking, "'Thief! Thief! Police!' It was some time before the constable succeeded in rescuing the tramp from the excited grip of his assailant, and several minutes before he could make himself heard. "'There, there, that'll do,' he managed to say at last. He gave the man in the shirt a vigorous shove, which silenced him for the moment. "'Leave the man alone now. You mustn't make that noise this time of night, waking up all the folks.' The unfortunate tramp, who, in the meanwhile, had managed to get onto his feet again, made no attempt to get away. Probably he thought he would stand but a poor chance. But the man in the shirt had partly recovered his power of speech, and was now blurting out jerky, half-intelligible sentences. "'I have been robbed! Robbed! I! That is, my master, Mr. Knopf! The desk is open! The diamond's gone! All in my charge! And now they are stolen! That's the thief! I'll swear! I heard him, not three minutes ago! Rush downstairs! The door into the garden was smashed! I ran across the garden! He was sneaking about here still! Thief! Thief! Police! Diamonds! Constable! Don't let him go! I'll make you responsible if you let him go. Now then, that'll do, admonished D-21, as soon as he could get a word in. Stop that row, will you? The man in the shirt was gradually recovering from his excitement. Can I give this man in charge? he asked. What for? Burglary and housebreaking. I heard him, I tell you. He must have Mr. Knopf's diamonds about him at this moment. Where is Mr. Knopf? Out of town, groaned the man in the shirt. He went to Brighton last night, and left me in charge, and now this thief has been, and— The tramp shrugged his shoulders, and suddenly, without a word, he quietly began taking off his coat and waistcoat. These he handed across to the constable. Eagerly the man in the shirt fell on them, and turned the ragged pockets inside out. From one of the windows a hilarious voice made some facetious remark, as the tramp with equal solemnity began divesting himself of his nether garments. "'Now then, stop that nonsense!' pronounced D-21 severely. What were you doing here this time of night, anyway? "'The streets o' London is free to the public, ain't they?' queried the tramp. "'This don't lead nowhere, my man.' "'Then I've lost my way, that's all,' growled the man surly. "'And perhaps you'll let me get along now.' By this time a couple of constables had appeared upon the scene. D-21 had no intention of losing sight of his friend the tramp, and the man in the shirt had again made a dash for the latter's collar, at the bare idea that he should be allowed to get along. I think D-21 was alive to the humour of the situation. He suggested that Robertson, the man in the nightshirt, should go in and get some clothes on, whilst he himself would wait for the inspector and the detective, whom D-15 would send round from the station immediately. Poor Robertson's teeth were chattering with cold. He had a violent fit of sneezing as D-21 hurried him into the house. 
The latter, with another constable, remained to watch the burglared premises from back and front, and D-15 took the wretched tramp to the station, with a view to sending an inspector and a detective round immediately. When the two latter gentlemen arrived at number 22, Fillimore Terrace, they found poor old Robertson in bed, shivering and still quite blue. He had got himself a hot drink, but his eyes were streaming and his voice was terribly husky. D-21 had stationed himself in the dining-room, where Robertson had pointed the desk out to him, with its broken lock and scattered contents. Robertson, between his sneezes, gave what account he could of the events which happened immediately before the robbery. His master, Mr. Ferdinand Knopf, he said, was a diamond merchant and a bachelor. He himself had been in Mr. Knopf's employ for over fifteen years, and was his only indoor servant. A charwoman came every day to do the housework. Last night Mr. Knopf dined at the house of Mr. Shipman, at number 26, lower down. Mr. Shipman is the great jeweller who has his place of business in South Audley Street. By the last post there was a letter with the Brighton postmark, and marked urgent, for Mr. Knopf, and he, Robertson, was just wondering if he should run over to number 26 with it when his master returned. He gave one glance at the contents of the letter, asked for his ABC railway guide, and ordered him, Robertson, to pack his bag at once and fetch him a cab. "'I guessed what it was,' continued Robertson, after another violent fit of sneezing. "'Mr. Knopf has a brother, Mr. Emil Knopf, to whom he is very much attached, and who is a great invalid. He generally goes about from one seaside place to another. He is now at Brighton, and has recently been very ill.' If you will take the trouble to go downstairs, I think you will still find the letter lying on the hall table. I read it after Mr. Knopf left. It was not from his brother, but from a gentleman who signed himself J. Collins, M.D. I don't remember the exact words, but, of course, you'll be able to read the letter. Mr. J. Collins said he had been called in very suddenly to see Mr. Emil Knopf, who, he added, had not many more hours to live, and had begged of the doctor to communicate at once with his brother in London. Before leaving, Mr. Knopf warned me that there were some valuables in his desk, diamonds mostly, and told me to be particularly careful about locking up the house. He often has left me like this in charge of his premises, and usually there have been diamonds in his desk, for Mr. Knopf has no regular city office, as he is a commercial traveller. This, briefly, was the gist of the matter which Robertson related to the inspector, with many repetitions and persistent volubility. The detective and inspector, before returning to the station with their report, thought they would call at number 26 on Mr. Shipman, the great jeweller. "'You remember, of course,' added the man in the corner, dreamily contemplating his bit of string, the exciting developments of this extraordinary case. Mr. Arthur Shipman is the head of the firm of Shipman and Company, the wealthy jewellers. He is a widower, and lives very quietly by himself, in his own old-fashioned way, in the small Kensington house, leaving it to his two married sons to keep up the style and swagger befitting the representatives of so wealthy a firm. "'I have only known Mr. Knopf for a very little while,' he explained to the detectives. "'He sold me two or three stones once or twice, I think, but we are both single men and we have often dined together. Last night he dined with me. He had that afternoon received a very fine consignment of Brazilian diamonds, as he told me, and knowing how beset I am with callers at my business place, he had brought the stones with him, hoping, perhaps, to do a bit of trade over the nuts and wine. "'I bought twenty-five thousand pounds worth of him,' added the jeweller, as if he were speaking of so many farthings, and gave him a cheque across the dinner-table for that amount. I think we were both pleased with our bargain, and we had a final bottle of forty-eight port over it together. Mr. Knopf left me at about nine-thirty. 
for he knows I go very early to bed, and I took my new stock upstairs with me and locked it up in the safe. I certainly heard nothing of the noise in the mews last night. I sleep on the second floor, in front of the house, and this is the first I have heard of poor Mr. Knopf's loss. At this point of his narrative Mr. Shipman very suddenly paused, and his face became very pale. With a hasty word of excuse he unceremoniously left the room, and the detective heard him running quickly upstairs. Less than two minutes later Mr. Shipman returned. There was no need for him to speak. Both the detective and the inspector guessed the truth in a moment by the look upon his face. "'The diamonds!' he gasped. "'I have been robbed!' End of chapters 3 and 4Chapters 5 and 6 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter 5 A Night's Adventure. Now I must tell you, continued the man in the corner, that after I had read the account of the double robbery, which appeared in the early afternoon papers, I set to work and had a good think. Yes, he added with a smile, noting Polly's look at the bit of string, on which he was still at work. Yes, aided by this small adjunct to continued thought, I made notes as to how I should proceed to discover the clever thief, who had carried off a small fortune in a single night. Of course, my methods are not those of a London detective. He has his own way of going to work. The one who was conducting the case questioned the unfortunate jeweller very closely about his servants and his household generally. I have three servants, explained Mr. Shipman, two of whom have been with me for many years. One, the housemaid, is a fairly newcomer. She has been here about six months. She came recommended by a friend and bore an excellent character. She and the parlour-maid room together. The cook, who knew me when I was a schoolboy, sleeps alone. All three servants sleep on the floor above. I lock the jewels up in the safe which stands in the dressing-room. My keys and watch I placed, as usual, beside my bed. As a rule, I am a fairly light sleeper. I cannot understand how it could have happened, but you had better come up and have a look at the safe. The key must have been abstracted from my bedside, the safe opened, and the keys replaced, all while I was fast asleep. Though I had no occasion to look into the safe until just now, I should have discovered my loss before going to business, for I intended to take the diamonds away with me. The detective and the inspector went up to have a look at the safe. The lock had in no way been tampered with. It had been opened with its own key. The detective spoke of chloroform, but Mr. Shipman declared that when he woke in the morning at about half-past seven there was no smell of chloroform in the room. However, the proceedings of the daring thief certainly pointed to the use of an anesthetic. An examination of the premises brought to light the fact that the burglar had, as in Mr. Knopf's house, used the glass-paneled door from the garden as a means of entrance but in this instance he had carefully cut out the pane of glass with a diamond, slipped the bolts, turned the key, and walked in. "'Which among your servants knew that you had diamonds in your house last night, Mr. Shipman?' asked the detective. "'Not one, I should say,' replied the jeweller, though perhaps the parlour-maid, whilst waiting at table, may have heard me and Mr. Knopf discussing our bargain. "'Would you object to my searching all your servants' boxes?' "'Certainly not. They would not object either, I am sure. They are perfectly honest.' The searching of servants' belongings is invariably a useless proceeding, added the man in the corner, with a shrug of the shoulders. Not one, not even a latter-day domestic, would be fool enough to keep stolen property in the house. However, the usual farce was gone through, with more or less protest on the part of Mr. Shipman's servants, 
and with the usual results. The jeweler could give no further information. The detective and the inspector, to do them justice, did their work of investigation minutely, and, what is more, intelligently. It seemed evident, from their deductions, that the burglar had commenced proceedings on number 26 Fillimore Terrace, and had then gone on, probably climbing over the garden walls between the houses to number 22, where he was almost caught in the act by Robertson. The facts were simple enough, but the mystery remained as to the individual who had managed to glean the information of the presence of the diamonds in both the houses, and the means with which he had adopted to get that information. It was obvious that the thief or thieves knew more about Mr. Knopf's affairs than Mr. Shipman's, since they had known how to use Mr. Emil Knopf's name in order to get his brother out of the way. It was now nearly ten o'clock, and the detectives, having taken leave of Mr. Shipman, went back to number 22, in order to ascertain whether Mr. Knopf had come back. The door was opened by the old charwoman, who said that her master had returned, and was having some breakfast in the dining-room. Mr. Ferdinand Knopf was a middle-aged man, with sallow complexion, black hair and beard, of obvious Hebrew extraction. He spoke with a marked foreign accent, but very courteously, to the two officials, who he begged would excuse him if he went on with his breakfast. "'I was fully prepared to hear the bad news,' he explained, which my man Robertson told me when I arrived. The letter I got last night was a bogus one. There is no such person as J. Collins, M.D. My brother had never felt better in his life. You will, I am sure, very soon trace the cunning writer of that epistle. Ah! But I was in a rage, I can tell you, when I got to the Metropole at Brighton and found that Emile, my brother, had never heard of any Dr. Collins. The last train to town had gone, although I raced back to the station as hard as I could. Poor old Robertson, he has a terrible cold. Ah, yes, my loss! It is for me a very serious one. If I had not made that lucky bargain with Mr. Shipman last night, I should, perhaps, at this moment be a ruined man. The stones I had yesterday were, firstly, some magnificent Brazilians. These I sold to Mr. Shipman, mostly. Then I had some very good Cape diamonds, all gone, and some quite special Parisians, of wonderful work and finish, entrusted me to sale by a great French house. I tell you, sir, my loss will be nearly ten thousand pounds altogether. I sell on commission, and, of course, have to make good the loss. He was evidently trying to bear up manfully, and as a businessman should, under his sad fate, he refused in any way to attach the slightest blame to his old and faithful servant Robertson, who had caught, perhaps, his death of a cold, in his zeal for his absent master. As for any hint of suspicion falling even remotely upon the man, the very idea appeared to Mr. Knopf absolutely preposterous. With regard to the old charwoman, Mr. Knopf certainly knew nothing about her, beyond the fact that she had been recommended to him by one of the tradespeople in the neighborhood, and seemed perfectly honest, respectable, and sober. About the tramp, Mr. Knopf knew still less, nor could he imagine how he, or in fact anybody else, could possibly know that he happened to have diamonds in his house that night. This certainly seemed to be the great hitch in the case. Mr. Ferdinand Knopf, at the instance of the police, later on went to the station and had a look at the suspected tramp. He declared that he had never set eyes on him before. Mr. Shipman, on his way home from business in the afternoon, had done likewise, and made a similar statement. Brought before the magistrate, the tramp gave but a poor account of himself. He gave a name and address, which latter, of course, proved to be false. After that he absolutely refused to speak. He seemed not to care whether he was kept in custody or not. Very soon even the police realized that, for the present at any rate, nothing could be got out of the suspected tramp. Mr. Francis Howard, the detective who had charge of the case, 
though he would not admit it even to himself, was at his wit's ends. You must remember that the burglary, through its very simplicity, was an exceedingly mysterious affair. The constable, D-21, who had stood in Adam and Eve Mews, presumably while Mr. Knopf's house was being robbed, had seen no one turn out from the cul-de-sac into the main passage of the Mews. The stables, which immediately faced the back entrance of Phillimore Terrace houses, were all private ones belonging to residents in the neighborhood. The coachmen, their families, and all the grooms who slept in the stablings were rigidly watched and questioned. One and all had seen nothing, heard nothing, until Robinson's shrieks had roused them from their sleep. As for the letter from Brighton, it was absolutely commonplace, and written upon note-paper which the detective, with Machiavellian cunning, traced to a stationer's shop in West Street. But the trade at that particular shop was a very brisk one. Scores of people had bought note-paper there, similar to that on which the supposed doctor had written his tricky letter. The handwriting was cramped, perhaps a disguised one. In any case, except under very exceptional circumstances, it could afford no clue to the identity of the thief. Needless to say, the tramp, when told to write his name, wrote a totally different and absolutely uneducated hand. Matters stood, however, in the same persistently mysterious state when a small discovery was made which suggested to Mr. Francis Howard an idea which, if properly carried out, would, he hoped, inevitably bring the cunning burglar safely within the grasp of the police. "'That was the discovery of a few of Mr. Knopf's diamonds,' continued the man in the corner, after a slight pause, evidently trampled into the ground by the thief whilst making his hurried exit through the garden of No. 22, Phillimore Terrace. At the end of this garden there was a small studio, which had been built by a former owner of the house, and behind it a small piece of waste ground about seven feet square, which had once been a rookery, and is still filled with large loose stones, in the shadow of which earwigs and woodlice, innumerable, have made a happy hunting-ground. It was Robertson who, two days after the robbery, having need of a large stone for some household purpose or other, dislodged one from that piece of waste ground, and found a few shining pebbles beneath it. Mr. Knopf took them round to the police station himself immediately, and identified the stones as some of his Parisian ones. Later on, the detective went to view the place where the find had been made, and there conceived the plan upon which he built big, cherished hopes. Acting upon the advice of Mr. Francis Howard, the police decided to let the anonymous tramp out of his safe retreat within the station, and to allow him to wander whithersoever he chose. A good idea, perhaps, the presumption being that, sooner or later, if the man was in any way mixed up with the cunning thieves, he would either rejoin his comrades, or even lead the police to where the remnant of his hoard lay hidden. Needless to say, his footsteps were to be literally dogged. The wretched tramp on his discharge wandered out of the yard, wrapping his thin coat round his shoulders, for it was a bitterly cold afternoon. He began operations by turning into the town hall tavern for a good feed and a copious drink. Mr. Francis Howard noted that he seemed to eye every passer-by with suspicion, but he seemed to enjoy his dinner, and sat some time over his bottle of wine. It was close upon four o'clock when he left the tavern, and then began for the indefatigable Mr. Howard one of the most wearisome and uninteresting chases through the mazes of the London streets he ever remembers to have made. Up Notting Hill, down the slums of Notting Dale, along the High Street, beyond Hammersmith, and through Shepherd's Bush did that anonymous tramp lead the unfortunate detective, never hurrying himself, stopping every now and then at a public-house to get a drink, whither Mr. Howard did not always care to follow him. In spite of his fatigue, Mr. Francis Howard's hopes rose with every half-hour of this weary tramp. The man was obviously striving to kill time. He seemed to feel no weariness, but walked on and on, 
perhaps suspecting that he was being followed. At last, with a beating heart, though half-perished with cold, and with terribly sore feet, the detective began to realize that the tramp was gradually working his way back towards Kensington. It was then close upon eleven o'clock at night. Once or twice the man had walked up and down the high street, from St. Paul's School to Derry and Tom's shops, and back again. He had looked down one or two of the side streets, and, at last, he turned into Phillimore Terrace. He seemed in no hurry. He even stopped once in the middle of the road, trying to light a pipe, which, as there was a high east wind, took him some considerable time. Then he leisurely sauntered down the street, and turned into Adam and Eve Mews, with Mr. Francis Howard now close at his heels. Acting upon the detective's instructions, there were several men in plain clothes, ready to his call in the immediate neighborhood. Two stood within the shadow of the steps of the Congregational Church at the corner of the Mews, others were stationed well within a soft call. Hardly, therefore, had the hare turned into the cul-de-sac at the back of Phillimore Terrace, than, at a slight sound from Mr. Francis Howard, every egress was barred to him, and he was caught like a rat in a trap. As soon as the tramp had advanced some thirty yards or so, the whole length of this part of the mews is about one hundred yards, and was lost in the shadow, Mr. Francis Howard directed four or five of his men to proceed cautiously up the mews, whilst the same number were to form a line all along the front of Phillimore Terrace, between the mews and the high street. Remember, the back garden walls threw long and dense shadows, but the silhouette of the man would be clearly outlined if he made any attempt at climbing over them. Mr. Howard felt quite sure that the thief was bent on recovering the stolen goods, which, no doubt, he had hidden in the rear of one of the houses. He would be caught in flagrant delicto, and with a heavy sentence hovering over him, he would probably be induced to name his accomplice. Mr. Francis Howard was thoroughly enjoying himself. The minutes sped on. Absolute silence, in spite of the presence of so many men, reigned in the dark and deserted mews. "'Of course, this night's adventure was never allowed to get into the papers,' added the man in the corner with his mild smile. "'Had the plan been successful, we should have heard all about it, with a long eulogistic article as to the astuteness of our police. But as it was, well, the tramp sauntered up the mews, and there he remained for aught Mr. Francis Howard or the other constables could ever explain. The earth or the shadows swallowed him up, no one saw him climb one of the garden walls, no one heard him break open a door, he had retreated within the shadow of the garden walls, and was seen or heard of no more. "'One of the servants in the Phillimore Terrace houses must have belonged to the gang,' said Polly, with quick decision. "'Ah, yes, but which?' said the man in the corner, making a beautiful knot in his bit of string. "'I can assure you that the police left not a stone unturned once more to catch sight of that tramp whom they had had in custody for two days,' but not a trace of him could they find, nor of the diamonds, from that day to this. CHAPTER Six, ALL HE KNEW The tramp was missing, continued the old man in the corner, and Mr. Francis Howard tried to find the missing tramp. Going round to the front, and seeing the lights at number 26 still in, he called upon Mr. Shipman. The jeweller had had a few friends to dinner, and was giving them whiskies and sodas before saying good-night. The servants had just finished washing up, and were waiting to go to bed. Neither they, nor Mr. Shipman, nor his guests, had seen or heard anything of the suspicious individual. Mr. Francis Howard went on to see Mr. Ferdinand Knopf. This gentleman was having his warm bath, preparatory to going to bed, so Robertson told the detective. However, Mr. Knopf insisted on talking to Mr. Howard through his bathroom door. Mr. Knopf thanked him for all the trouble he was taking, and felt sure that he and Mr. Shipman would soon recover possession of their diamonds, 
thanks to the persevering detective. He, 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 laughed the man in the corner. Poor Mr. Howard. He persevered, but got no further. No, nor anyone else, for that matter. Even I might not be able to convict the thieves if I told all I knew to the police. Now, follow my reasoning point by point, he added eagerly. Who knew the presence of the diamonds in the house of Mr. Shipman and Mr. Knopf? Firstly, he said, putting up an ugly claw-like finger, Mr. Shipman, then Mr. Knopf, then, presumably, the man Robertson. And the tramp? said Polly. Leave the tramp alone for the present, since he has vanished, and take point number two. Mr. Shipman was drugged. That was pretty obvious. No man under ordinary circumstances would, without waking, have his keys abstracted and then replaced at his own bedside. Mr. Howard suggested that the thief was armed with some anesthetic. But how did the thief get into Mr. Shipman's room without waking him from his natural sleep? Is it not simpler to suppose that the thief had taken the precaution to drug the jeweler before the latter went to bed? But— Wait a minute and take point number three. Though there was every proof that Mr. Shipman had been in possession of twenty-five thousand pounds worth of goods since Mr. Knopf had a check from him for that amount, there was no proof that in Mr. Knopf's house there was even an odd stone worth a sovereign. And then again, went the scarecrow, getting more and more excited, did it ever strike you or anybody else that at no time, while the tramp was in custody, while all that searching examination was being gone on with, no one ever saw Mr. Knopf and his men Robertson together at the same time? Ah, he continued, whilst suddenly the young girl seemed to see the whole thing as in a vision. They did not forget a single detail. Follow me with them, point by point. Two cunning scoundrels, geniuses they could be called, well provided with some ill-gotten funds, but determined on a grand coup. They play at respectability, for six months, say. One is the master, the other the servant. They take a house in the same street as their intended victim, make friends with him, accomplish one or two credible but very small business transactions, always drawing on the reserve funds, which might have even amounted to a few hundreds, and a bit of credit. Then the Brazilian diamonds and the Parisians, which, remember, were so perfect that they required chemical testing to be detected. The Parisian stones are sold, not in business, of course, in the evening after dinner and a good deal of wine. Mr. Knopf's Brazilians were beautiful, perfect. Mr. Knopf was a well-known diamond merchant. Mr. Shipman bought, but with the morning would have come sober sense. The check stopped before it could have been presented, the swindler caught. No, those exquisite Parisians were never intended to rest in Mr. Shipman's safe until the morning. That last bottle of forty-eight port, with the aid of a powerful soporific, ensured that Mr. Shipman would sleep undisturbed during the night. Ah, remember all the details, they were so admirable. The letter posted in Brighton by the cunning rogue to himself, the smashed desk, the broken pane of glass in his own house, the man Robertson on the watch, while Knopf himself in ragged clothing found his way into number 26. If Constable D-21 had not appeared upon the scene, that exciting comedy in the early morning would not have been enacted. As it was, in the supposed fight, Mr. Shipman's diamonds passed from the hands of the tramp into those of his accomplice. Then, later on, Robertson, ill in bed while his master was supposed to have returned. By the way, it never struck anybody that no one saw Mr. Knopf come home, though he surely would have driven up in a cab. Then the double part played by one man for the next two days. It certainly never struck either the police or the inspector. Remember, they only saw Robertson when in bed with a streaming cold. But Knopf had to be out of jail as soon as possible. The dual role could not be kept up for long. Hence the story of the diamonds found in the garden of number 22. 
the cunning rogues guessed that the usual plan would be acted upon, and the suspected thief allowed to visit the scene where his hoard lay hidden. It had all been foreseen, and Robertson must have been constantly on the watch. The tramp stopped, mind you, in Phillimore Terrace for some moments, lighting a pipe. The accomplice, then, was fully on the alert. He slipped the bolts of the back garden gate. Five minutes later, Knopf was in the house, in a hot bath, getting rid of the disguise of our friend the tramp. Remember that again, here the detective did not actually see him. The next morning Mr. Knopf, black hair and beard and all, was himself again. The whole trick lay in one simple art, which those two cunning rascals knew to absolute perfection, the art of impersonating one another. They are brothers, presumably. Twin brothers, I should say. But Mr. Knopf, suggested Polly. Well, look in the trade's directory. You will see F. Knopf and Company, diamond merchants of some city address. Ask about the firm among the trade. You will hear that it is firmly established on a sound financial basis. <laughs> and it deserves to be, added the man in the corner, as, calling for the waitress, he received his ticket, and taking up his shabby hat, took himself and his bit of string rapidly out of the room. End of chapters 5 and 6「Chapter Seven of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzi. Chapter Seven: The York Mystery. The man in the corner looked quite cheerful that morning. He had had two glasses of milk and had even gone to the extravagance of an extra cheesecake. Polly knew that he was itching to talk police and murders, for he cast furtive glances at her from time to time, produced a bit of string, tied and untied it into scores of complicated knots, and finally, bringing out his pocket-book, he placed two or three photographs before her. "'Do you know who that is?' he asked, pointing to one of these. The girl looked at the face in the picture. It was that of a woman, not exactly pretty, but very gentle and childlike, with a strange pathetic look in the large eyes which was wonderfully appealing." "'That was Lady Arthur Skelmerton,' he said, and in a flash there flitted before Polly's mind the weird and tragic history which had broken this loving woman's heart. Lady Arthur Skelmerton! That name recalled one of the most bewildering, most mysterious passages in the annals of undiscovered crimes. "'Yes, it was sad, wasn't it?' he commented in answer to Polly's thoughts. "'Another case which, but for idiotic blunders on the part of the police, must have stood clear as daylight before the public and satisfied general anxiety.' "'Would you object to my recapitulating its preliminary details?' She said nothing, so he continued without waiting further for a reply. "'It all occurred during the York Racing Week, a time which brings to the quiet cathedral city its quota of shady characters, who congregate wherever money and wits happen to fly away from their owners. Lord Arthur Skelmerton, a very well-known figure in London society, and in racing circles, had rented one of the fine houses which overlooked the racecourse.' He had entered Peppercorn, by St. Armand, Notre Dame, for the great Ebor handicap. Peppercorn was the winner of the new market, and his chances for the Ebor were considered a practical certainty. If you have ever been to York, you will have noticed the fine houses, which have their drive and front entrances in the road called the Mount, and the gardens of which extend as far as the racecourse, commanding a lovely view over the entire track. It was one of these houses, called the Elms, which Lord Arthur Skelmerton had rented for the summer. Lady Arthur came down some little time before the racing week with her servants. She had no children, 
but she had many relatives and friends in York, since she was the daughter of old Sir John Eddy, the cocoa manufacturer, a rigid Quaker who, it was generally said, kept the tightest possible hold on his own purse-strings, and looked with marked disfavor upon his aristocratic son-in-law's fondness for gaming-tables and betting-books. As a matter of fact, Maud Eddy had married the handsome young lieutenant in the Hussars, quite against her father's wishes. But she was an only child, and after a good deal of demure and grumbling, Sir John, who idolized his daughter, gave way to her whim, and a reluctant consent to the marriage was wrung from him. But, as a Yorkshireman, he was far too shrewd a man of the world, not to know that love played but a very small part in persuading a duke's son to marry the daughter of a cocoa manufacturer, and as long as he lived he determined that since his daughter was being wed because of her wealth, that wealth should at least secure her own happiness. He refused to give Lady Arthur any capital, which, in spite of the most carefully worded settlements, would inevitably, sooner or later, have found its way into the pockets of Lord Arthur's racing friends. But he made his daughter a very handsome allowance, amounting to over three thousand pounds a year, which enabled her to keep up an establishment befitting her new rank. A great many of these facts, intimate enough as they are, leaked out, you see, during that period of intense excitement which followed the murder of Charles Lavender, and when the public eye was fixed searchingly upon Lord Arthur Skelmerton, probing all the inner details of his idle, useless life. It soon became a matter of common gossip that poor little Lady Arthur continued to worship her handsome husband in spite of his obvious neglect, and not having as yet presented him with an heir, she settled herself down into a life of humble apology for her plebeian existence, atoning for it by condoning all his faults and forgiving all his vices, even to the extent of cloaking them before the prying eyes of Sir John, who was persuaded to look upon his son-in-law as a paragon of all the domestic virtues and a perfect model of a husband. Among Lord Arthur Skelmerton's many expensive tastes, there was certainly that for horse-flesh and cards. After some successful betting at the beginning of his married life, he had started a racing stable, which it was generally believed, as he was very lucky, was a regular source of income to him. Peppercorn, however, after his brilliant performances at Newmarket, did not continue to fulfill his master's expectations. His collapse at York was attributed to the hardness of the course and to various other causes, but its immediate effect was to put Lord Arthur Skelmerton in what is properly called a tight place, for he had backed his horse for all he was worth, and must have stood to lose considerably over five thousand pounds on that one day. The collapse of the favourite, and the grand victory of King Cole, a rank outsider, on the other hand, had proved a golden harvest for the bookmakers, and all the York hotels were busy with dinners and suppers given by the confraternity of the turf to celebrate the happy occasion. The next day was Friday, one of the few important racing events, after which the brilliant and the shady throng which had flocked into the venerable city for the week would fly to more congenial climes, and leave it with its fine old minster and its ancient walls as sleepy, as quiet as before. Lord Arthur Skelmerton also intended to leave York on the Saturday, and on the Friday night he gave a farewell bachelor dinner party at the Elms, at which Lady Arthur did not appear. After dinner the gentlemen settled down to bridge, with pretty stiff points, you may be sure. It had just struck eleven at the Minster Tower, when Constables McNaught and Murphy, who were patrolling the racecourse, were startled by loud cries of, Murder! and Police! Quickly ascertaining whence these cries proceeded, they hurried on at a gallop, and came up, quite close to the boundary of Lord Arthur Skelmerton's grounds, upon a group of three men, two of whom seemed to be wrestling vigorously with one another, whilst the third was lying face downwards on the ground. As soon as the constables drew near, one of the wrestlers shouted more vigorously, 
and with a certain tone of authority, "'Here, you fellows, hurry up sharp! This brute is giving me the slip!' But the brute did not seem inclined to do anything of the sort. He certainly extricated himself with a violent jerk from his assailant's grasp, but made no attempt to run away. The constables had quickly dismounted, whilst he who had shouted for help originally added more quietly, "'My name is Skelmerton. This is the boundary of my property. I was smoking a cigar at the pavilion over there with a friend, when I heard loud voices, followed by a cry and a groan. I hurried down the steps and saw this poor fellow lying on the ground, with a knife sticking between his shoulder-blades, and his murderer,' he added, pointing to the man who stood quietly by with Constable McNaught's firm grip upon his shoulder, still stooping over the body of his victim. I was too late, I fear, to save the latter, but just in time to grapple with the assassin. "'It's a lie,' here interrupted the man, hoarsely. "'I didn't do it, Constable. I swear I didn't do it. I saw him fall. I was coming along a couple of hundred yards away, and I tried to see if the poor fellow was dead. I swear I didn't do it.' "'You'll have to explain that to the inspector presently, my man,' was Constable McNaught's quiet comment. And still vigorously protesting his innocence, the accused allowed himself to be led away, and the body was conveyed to the station, pending further identification. The next morning the papers were full of the tragedy. A column and a half of the York Herald was devoted to an account of Lord Arthur Skelmerton's plucky capture of the assassin. The latter had continued to declare his innocence, but had remarked, it appears, with grim humour, that he quite saw he was in a tight place, out of which, however, he would find it easy to extricate himself. He had stated to the police that the deceased's name was Charles Lavender, a well-known bookmaker, which fact was soon verified, for many of the murdered man's pals were still in the city. So far the most pushing of newspaper reporters had been unable to glean further information from the police. No one doubted, however, but that the man in charge, who gave his name as George Higgins, had killed the bookmaker for purposes of robbery. The inquest had been fixed for Tuesday after the murder. Lord Arthur had been obliged to stay in York a few days, as his evidence would be needed. That fact gave the case, perhaps, a certain amount of interest, as far as York and London society were concerned. Charles Lavender, moreover, was well known on the turf, but no bombshell exploding beneath the walls of the ancient cathedral city could have more astonished its inhabitants than the news which, at about five in the afternoon on the day of the inquest, spread like wildfire throughout the town. That news was that the inquest had concluded at three o'clock with a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, and that two hours later the police had arrested Lord Arthur Skelmerton at his private residence, the Elms, and charged him on a warrant with the murder of Charles Lavender, the bookmaker. End of chapter 7Chapters 8 and 9 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter 8 The Capital Charge. The police, it appears, instinctively feeling that some mystery lurked round the death of the bookmaker and his supposed murderer's quiet protestations of innocence had taken a very considerable amount of trouble in collecting all the evidence they could for the inquest, which might throw some light upon Charles Lavender's life, previous to his tragic end. Thus it was that a very large array of witnesses was brought before the coroner, chief among whom was, of course, Lord Arthur Skelmerton. The first witnesses called were the two constables, who deposed that, just as the church clocks in the neighbourhood were striking eleven, they had heard the cries for help, had ridden to the spot whence the sounds proceeded, and had found the prisoner in the tight grasp of Lord Arthur Skelmerton, who at once accused the man of murder, and gave him in charge. 
Both constables gave the same version of the incident, and both were positive as to the time when it occurred. Medical evidence went to prove that the deceased had been stabbed from behind between the shoulder blades whilst he was walking, that the wound was inflicted by a large hunting knife which was produced and which had been left sticking in the wound. That the wound was inflicted by a large hunting knife which was produced and which had been left sticking in the wound. Lord Arthur Skelmerton was then called and substantially repeated what he had already told the constables. He stated, namely, that on the night in question he had some gentlemen friends to dinner and afterwards bridge was played. He himself was not playing much, and at a few minutes before eleven he strolled out with a cigar as far as the pavilion at the end of his garden. He then heard the voices, the cry and the groan previously described by him, and managed to hold the murderer down until the arrival of the constables. At this point the police proposed to call a witness, James Terry by name and a bookmaker by profession, who had been chiefly instrumental in identifying the deceased, a pal of his. It was his evidence which first introduced that element of sensation into the case which culminated in the wildly exciting arrest of a duke's son upon a capital charge. It appears that on the evening after the Ebor, Terry and Lavender were in the bar of the Black Swan Hotel, having drinks. "'I had done pretty well over Peppercorn's fiasco,' he explained, "'but poor old Lavender was very much down in the dumps. He had held only a few very small bets against the favourite, and the rest of the day had been a poor one with him.' I asked him if he had any bets with the owner of Peppercorn, and he told me that he only held one for less than five hundred pounds. I laughed, and said that if he held one for five thousand pounds it would make no difference, as from what I had heard from the other fellows, Lord Arthur Skelmerton must be about stumped. Lavender seemed terribly put out at this, and swore he would get that five hundred pounds out of Lord Arthur if no one else got another penny from him. "'It's the only money I've made today,' he says to me. "'I mean to get it.' "'You won't,' I says. I will, he says. You will have to look pretty sharp about it then, I says, for everyone will be wanting to get something, and first come, first served. Oh, he'll serve me right enough, never you mind, says Lavender to me, with a laugh. If he don't pay up willingly, I've got that in my pocket which will make him sit up and open my lady's eyes and Sir John Eddy's too about their precious noble lord. Then he seemed to think he had gone too far, and wouldn't say anything more to me about that affair. I saw him on the course the next day, I asked him if he had got his five hundred pounds. He said, No, but I shall get it today. Lord Arthur Skelmerton, after having given his own evidence, had left the court. It was therefore impossible to know how he would take this account, which threw so serious a light upon an association with the dead man of which he himself had said nothing. Nothing could shake James Terry's accounts of the facts he had placed before the jury, and when the police informed the coroner that they had proposed to place George Higgins himself in the witness box, as his evidence would prove, as it were, a compliment and corollary of that of Terry, the jury very eagerly assented. If James Terry, the bookmaker, loud, florid, vulgar, was an unprepossessing individual, certainly George Higgins, who was still under the accusation of murder, was ten thousand times more so. None too clean, slouchy, obsequious yet insolent, he was the very personification of the cad who haunts the race-course, and who lives not so much by his own wits as by the lack of them in others. He described himself as a turf commission agent, whatever that may be. He stated that about six o'clock on the Friday afternoon, when the race course was still full of people, all hurrying after the day's excitements, he himself happened to be standing close to the hedge which marks the boundary of Lord Arthur Skelmerton's grounds. There is a pavilion there at the end of the garden, he explained, on a slightly elevated ground, and he could hear and see a group of ladies and gentlemen having tea. 
Some steps lead down a little to the left of the garden onto the course, and presently he noticed at the bottom of these steps Lord Arthur Skelmerton and Charles Lavender standing talking together. He knew both gentlemen by sight, but he could not see them very well, as they were both partly hidden by the hedge. He was quite sure that the gentlemen had not seen him, and he could not help overhearing some of their conversation. "'That's my last word, Lavender,' Lord Arthur was saying very quietly. "'I haven't got the money, and I can't pay you now. You'll have to wait.' "'Wait. I can't wait,' said old Lavender in reply. "'I've got my engagements to meet, same as you. I'm not going to risk being posted up as a defaulter while you hold five hundred pounds of my money. You'd better give it to me now, or—' But Lord Arthur interrupted him very quietly, and said— "'Yes, my good man, or—or or I'll let Sir John have a good look at that little bill I had of yours a couple of years ago. If you'll remember, my lord, it has got at the bottom of it Sir John's signature in your handwriting. Perhaps Sir John, or perhaps my lady, would pay me something for that little bill. If not, the police can have a squint at it. I've held my tongue long enough, and—' "'Look here, Lavender,' said Lord Arthur. "'Do you know what this little game of yours is called, in law?' "'Yes, and I don't care,' says Lavender.' If I don't have that five hundred pounds, I am a ruined man. If you ruin me, I'll do for you, and we shall be quits. That's my last word. He was talking very loudly, and I thought some of Lord Arthur's friends up in the pavilion must have heard. He thought so, too, I think, for he said quickly, If you don't hold your confounded tongue, I'll give you in charge for blackmail this instant. You wouldn't dare, says Lavender, and he began to laugh. But just then a lady from the top of the step says, Your tea is getting cold and Lord Arthur turned to go, but just before he went, Lavender says to him, "'I'll come back to-night. You'll have the money then.'" George Higgins, it appears, after he had heard this interesting conversation, pondered as to whether he should not turn what he knew into some sort of profit. Being a gentleman who lives entirely by his wits, this type of knowledge forms his chief source of income. As a preliminary to future moves, he decided not to lose sight of Lavender for the rest of the day. "'Lavender went and had dinner at the Black Swan,' explained Mr. George Higgins, "'and I, after I had had a bite myself, waited outside till I saw him come out. At about ten o'clock I was rewarded for my trouble. He told the hall porter to get him a fly, and he jumped into it. I could not hear what direction he gave the driver, but the fly certainly drove off towards the race-course. "'Now, I was interested in this little affair,' continued the witness, "'and I couldn't afford a fly. I started to run. Of course I couldn't keep up with it, but I thought I knew which way my gentleman had gone. I made straight for the race-course, and for the hedge at the bottom of Lord Arthur Skelmerton's grounds. It was rather a dark night, and there was a slight drizzle. I couldn't see more than about a hundred yards before me. All at once it seemed to me as if I heard Lavender's voice talking loudly in the distance. I hurried forward, and suddenly saw a group of two figures, mere blurs in the darkness, for one instant at a distance of about fifty yards from where I was. The next moment one figure had fallen forward and the other had disappeared. I ran to the spot, only to find the body of the murdered man lying on the ground. I stooped to see if I could be of any use to him, and immediately I was collared from behind by Lord Arthur himself. "'You may imagine,' said the man in the corner, "'how keen was the excitement of that moment in court. Coroner and jury alike literally hung breathless on every word that shabby, vulgar individual uttered. You see, by itself, his evidence would have been worth very little.' but coming on the top of that given by James Terry, its significance, more its truth, had become glaringly apparent. Closely cross-examined, he adhered strictly to his statement, and having finished his evidence, George Higgins remained in charge of the constables, and the next witness of importance was called up. This was Mr. Chips, the senior footman in the employment of Lord Arthur Skelmerton. He deposed 
that at about ten-thirty on the Friday evening a party drove up to the Elms in a fly and asked to see Lord Arthur. On being told that his lordship had company, he seemed terribly put out. "'I asked the party to give me his card,' continued Mr. Chips, "'as I didn't know, perhaps, that his lordship might wish to see him. But I kept him standing at the hall door, and I didn't altogether like his looks. I took the card in. His lordship and the gentleman was playing cards in the smoking-room, and as soon as I could do so without disturbing his lordship, I gave him the party's card. "'What name was there on the card?' here interrupted the coroner. "'I couldn't say now, sir,' replied Mr. Chips. "'I don't really remember. It was a name I had never seen before, but I see so many visiting cards one way and the other in his lordship's all that I can't remember all the names.' "'Then, after a few minutes waiting, you gave his lordship the card. What happened then?' "'His lordship didn't seem at all pleased,' said Mr. Chips, with much guarded dignity. "'But finally,' he said, "'show him into the library, Chips, I'll see him,' and he got up from the card-table, saying to the gentleman, "'Go on without me, I'll be back in a minute or two.' I was about to open the door for his lordship when my lady came into the room, and then his lordship suddenly changed his mind like, and said to me, "'Tell that man I'm busy and can't see him.' And he sat down again at the card-table. I went back to the hall and told the party his lordship wouldn't see him. He said, "'Oh, it doesn't matter,' and went away quite quiet-like. "'Do you recollect at all at what time that was?' asked one of the jury. "'Yes, sir. While I was waiting to speak to his lordship, I looked at the clock, sir. It was twenty past ten, sir.' There was one more significant fact in connection with the case, which tended still more to excite the curiosity of the public at the time, and still further to bewilder the police later on, and that fact was mentioned by Chips in his evidence. The knife, namely, with which Charles Lavender had been stabbed, and which, remember, had been left in the wound, was now produced in court. After a little hesitation, Chips identified it as the property of his master, Lord Arthur Skelmerton. Can you wonder, then, that the jury absolutely refused to bring in a verdict against George Higgins? There was, really, beyond Lord Arthur Skelmerton's testimony, not one particle of evidence against him, whilst, as the day wore on and witness after witness was called up, suspicion ripened in the minds of all those present that the murderer could be no other than Lord Arthur Skelmerton himself. The knife was, of course, the strongest piece of circumstantial evidence, and no doubt the police hoped to collect a great deal more now that they held a clue in their hands. Directly after the verdict, therefore, which was guardedly directed against some person unknown, the police obtained a warrant and later on arrested Lord Arthur in his own house. The sensation, of course, was tremendous. Hours before he was brought up before the magistrate, the approach to the court was thronged. His friends, mostly ladies, were all eager, you see, to watch the dashing society man in so terrible a position. There was universal sympathy for Lady Arthur, who was in a very precarious state of health. Her worship of her worthless husband was well known, small wonder that his final and awful misdeed had practically broken her heart. The last bulletin issued just after his arrest stated that her ladyship was not expected to live. She was then in a comatose condition, and all hope had perforce to be abandoned. At last the prisoner was brought in. He looked very pale, perhaps, but otherwise kept up the bearing of a high-bred gentleman. He was accompanied by his solicitor, Sir Marmaduke Ingersoll, who was evidently talking to him in quiet, reassuring tones. Mr. Buchanan prosecuted for the Treasury, and certainly his indictment was terrific. According to him, but one decision could be arrived at, namely, that the accused in the dock had, in a moment of passion, and perhaps of fear, killed the blackmailer, who threatened him with disclosures which might forever have ruined him socially, and having committed the deed and fearing its consequences, 
probably realizing that the patrolling constables might catch sight of his retreating figure, he had availed himself of George Higgins' presence on the spot to loudly accuse him of the murder. Having concluded his able speech, Mr. Buchanan called his witnesses, and the evidence, which on second hearing seemed more damning than ever, was all gone through again. Sir Marmaduke had no question to ask of the witnesses for the prosecution. He stared at them placidly through his gold-rimmed spectacles. Then he was ready to call his own for the defense. Colonel McIntosh, R.A., was the first. He was present at the bachelor's party given by Lord Arthur the night of the murder. His evidence tended at first to corroborate that of Chips the footman with regard to Lord Arthur's orders to show the visitor into the library and his counter-order as soon as his wife came into the room. "'Do you not think it strange, Colonel?' asked Mr. Buchanan, that Lord Arthur should so suddenly have changed his mind about seeing his visitor. "'Well, not exactly strange,' said the Colonel, a fine, manly, soldierly figure who looked curiously out of his element in the witness-box. "'I don't think that it is a very rare occurrence for racing men to have certain acquaintances whom they would not wish their wives to know anything about.' "'Then it did not strike you that Lord Arthur Skelmerton had some reason for not wishing his wife to know of that particular visitor's presence in his house?' "'I don't think that I gave the matter the slightest serious consideration,' was the Colonel's guarded reply. Mr. Buchanan did not press the point, and allowed the witness to conclude his statements. "'I had finished my turn at bridge,' he said, and went out into the garden to smoke a cigar. Lord Arthur Skelmerton joined me a few minutes later, and we were sitting in the pavilion when I heard a loud and, as I thought, threatening voice from the other side of the hedge. I did not catch the words, but Lord Arthur said to me, "'There seems to be a row down there.' I'll go and have a look and see what it is. I tried to dissuade him, and certainly made no attempt to follow him, but not more than half a minute could have elapsed before I heard a cry and a groan, then Lord Arthur's footsteps hurrying down the wooden stairs which lead on to the race-course. You may imagine, said the man in the corner, what severe cross-examination the gallant colonel had to undergo, in order that his assertions might in some way be shaken by the prosecution, but with military precision and frigid calm he repeated his important statements amidst a general silence, through which you could have heard the proverbial pin. He had heard the threatening voice while sitting with Lord Arthur Skelmerton. Then came the cry and groan, and after that Lord Arthur steps down the stairs. He himself thought of following to see what had happened, but it was a very dark night, and he did not know the grounds very well. While trying to find his way to the garden steps, he heard Lord Arthur's cry for help, the tramp of the patrolling constable's horses, and subsequently the whole scene between Lord Arthur, the man Higgins, and the constables. When he finally found his way to the stairs, Lord Arthur was returning in order to send a groom for police assistance. The witness stuck to his points as he had to his guns at Beckfontine a year ago. Nothing could shake him. And Sir Marmaduke looked triumphantly across at his opposing colleague. With the gallant colonel's statements, the edifice of the prosecution certainly began to collapse. You see, there was not a particle of evidence to show that the accused had met and spoken to the deceased after the latter's visit at the front door of the elms. He told Chips that he wouldn't see the visitor, and Chips went into the hall directly and showed Lavender out the way he came. No assignation could have been made, no hint could have been given by the murdered man to Lord Arthur that he would go round to the back entrance and wish to see him there. Two other guests of Lord Arthur's swore positively that after Chips had announced the visitor, their host stayed at the card-table until a quarter to eleven, when evidently he went out to join Colonel McIntosh in the garden. Sir Marmaduke's speech was clever in the extreme. Bit by bit he demolished that tower of strength, the case against the accused, basing his defence entirely upon the evidence of Lord Arthur Skelmerton's guests that night. Until ten-forty-five Lord Arthur was playing cards. 
A quarter of an hour later, the police were on the scene, and the murder had been committed. In the meanwhile, Colonel McIntosh's evidence proved conclusively that the accused had been sitting with him, smoking a cigar. It was obvious, therefore, clear as daylight, concluded the great lawyer, that his client was entitled to a full discharge. Nay, more, he thought that the police should have been more careful before they harrowed up public feeling by arresting a high-born gentleman on such insufficient evidence as they had brought forward. The question of the knife remained certainly, but Sir Marmaduke passed over it with guarded eloquence, placing that strange question in the category of those inexplicable coincidences which tend to puzzle the ablest detectives, and cause them to commit such unpardonable blunders as the present one had been. After all, the footman may have been mistaken. The pattern of that knife was not an exclusive one, and he, on behalf of his client, flatly denied that it had ever belonged to him. Well, continued the man in the corner, with the chuckle peculiar to him in moments of excitement, the noble prisoner was discharged. Perhaps it would be invidious to say that he left the court without a stain on his character, for I dare say you know from experience that the crime known as the York Mystery has never been satisfactorily cleared up. Many people shook their heads dubiously when they remembered that, after all, Charles Lavender was killed with a knife which one witness had sworn belonged to Lord Arthur. Others, again, reverted to the original theory that George Higgins was the murderer, that he and James Terry had concocted the story of Lavender's attempt at blackmail on Lord Arthur, and that the murder had been committed for the sole purpose of robbery. Be that as it may, the police have not so far been able to collect sufficient evidence against Higgins or Terry, and the crime has been classed by press and public alike in the category of so-called impenetrable mysteries. Chapter 9. A Broken-Hearted Woman The man in the corner called for another glass of milk, and drank it down slowly before he resumed. Now Lord Arthur lives mostly abroad, he said. His poor, suffering wife died the day after he was liberated by the magistrate. She never recovered consciousness, even sufficiently to hear the joyful news that the man she loved so well was innocent after all. Mystery, he added, as if in answer to Polly's own thought, the murder of that man was never a mystery to me. I cannot understand how the police could have been so blind when every one of the witnesses, both for the prosecution and defense, practically pointed all the time to the one guilty person. What do you think of it all yourself? I think the case so bewildering, she replied, that I do not see one single clear point in it. You don't, he said excitedly, while the bony fingers fidgeted again with that inevitable bit of string. You don't see that there is one point clear which to me was the key of the whole thing? Lavender was murdered, wasn't he? Lord Arthur did not kill him. He had, at least, in Colonel McIntosh, an unimpeachable witness to prove that he could not have committed that murder. And yet, he added with slow, exciting emphasis, marking each sentence with a knot, and yet he deliberately tries to throw the guilt upon a man who obviously was also innocent. Now why? He may have thought him guilty, or wished to shield or cover the retreat of one he knew to be guilty. I don't understand. Think of someone, he said excitedly, someone whose desire would be as great as that of Sir Arthur to silence a scandal round that gentleman's name, someone who, unknown perhaps to Lord Arthur, had overheard the same conversation which George Higgins related to the police and the magistrate, someone who, whilst Chips was taking Lavender's card into his master, had a few minutes' time wherein to make an assignation with Lavender, promising him money, no doubt, in exchange for the compromising bills. "'Surely you don't mean—' gasped Polly. Point number one, he interrupted quietly. Utterly missed by the police, George Higgins in his deposition stated 
that at the most animated stage of Lavender's conversation with Lord Arthur, and when the bookmaker's tone of voice became loud and threatening, a voice from the top of the steps interrupted that conversation, saying, "'Your tea is getting cold.' "'Yes, but,' she argued, "'wait a minute, for there is point number two. That voice was a lady's voice. Now I did exactly what the police should have done, but did not do. I went to have a look from the racecourse side at those garden steps.' which to my mind are such important factors in the discovery of this crime, I found only about a dozen rather low steps. Anyone standing on the top must have heard every word Charles Lavender uttered the moment he raised his voice. Even then! Very well, you grant that, he said excitedly. Then there was the great, the all-important point, which, oddly enough, the prosecution never for a moment took into consideration. When Chips, the footman, first told Lavender that Lord Arthur could not see him, the bookmaker was terribly put out. Chips then goes to speak to his master, a few minutes elapse, and when the footman once again tells Lavender that his lordship won't see him, the latter says, very well, and seems to treat the matter with complete indifference. Obviously, therefore, something must have happened in between to alter the bookmaker's frame of mind. Well, what had happened? Think over all the evidence, and you will see that one thing only had occurred in the interval, namely, Lady Arthur's advent into the room. In order to go into the smoking-room she must have crossed the hall. She must have seen Lavender. In that brief interval she must have realized that the man was persistent, and therefore a living danger to her husband. Remember, women have done strange things. They are a far greater puzzle to the student of human nature than the sterner, less complex sex has ever been. As I argued before, as the police should have argued all along, why did Lord Arthur deliberately accuse an innocent man of murder, if not to shield the guilty one? Remember, Lady Arthur may have been discovered. The man, George Higgins, may have caught sight of her before she had time to make good her retreat. His attention, as well as that of the constables, had to be diverted. Lord Arthur acted on the blind impulse of saving his wife at any cost. "'She may have been met by Colonel McIntosh,' argued Polly. "'Perhaps she was,' he said. "'Who knows? The gallant Colonel had to swear to his friend's innocence. He could do that in all conscience. After that, his duty was accomplished. No innocent man was suffering for the guilty.' The knife, which had belonged to Lord Arthur, would always save George Higgins. For a time it had pointed to the husband, fortunately never to the wife. Poor thing, she died probably of a broken heart. But women, when they love, think only of one object on earth, the one who is beloved. To me the whole thing was clear from the very first. When I read the account of the murder, the knife, stabbing, bah! Didn't I know enough of English crime not to be certain at once that no English man, be he ruffian from the gutter or be he duke's son, ever stabs his victim in the back. Italians, French, Spaniards do it, if you will, and women of most nations. An Englishman's instinct is to strike and not to stab. George Higgins or Lord Arthur Skelmerton would have knocked their victim down. The woman only would lie in wait until the enemy's back was turned. She knows her weakness, and she does not mean to miss. Think it over. There is not one flaw in my argument, but the police never thought the matter out. Perhaps in this case it was just as well." He had gone and left Miss Polly Burton still staring at the photograph of a pretty, gentle-looking woman with a decided, willful curve round the mouth and a strange, unaccountable look in the large, pathetic eyes, and the little journalist felt quite thankful that in this case the murder of Charles Lavender the bookmaker, cowardly, wicked as it was, had remained a mystery to the police and the public. End of chapters 8 and 9「Chapter Ten of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. 
all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orsi. Chapter 10 The Mysterious Death on the Underground Railway. It was all very well for Mr. Richard Frobisher of the London Mail to cut up rough about it. Polly did not altogether blame him. She liked him all the better for that frank outburst of manlike ill-temper which, after all said and done, was only a very flattering form of masculine jealousy. Moreover, Polly distinctly felt guilty about the whole thing. She had promised to meet Dicky, that is, Mr. Richard Frobisher, at two o'clock sharp outside the Palace Theatre, because she wanted to go to a Maud Allen matinee, and because he naturally wished to go with her. But at two o'clock sharp she was still in Norfolk Street Strand, inside an ABC shop, sipping cold coffee opposite a grotesque old man who was fiddling with a bit of string. How could she be expected to remember Maud Allen or the Palace Theatre, or Dicky himself, for a matter of that? The man in the corner had begun to talk of that mysterious death on the Underground Railway, and Polly had lost count of time, of place, and circumstance. She had gone to lunch quite early, for she was looking forward to the matinee at the palace. The old scarecrow was sitting in his accustomed place when she came into the ABC shop, but he made no remark all the time that the young girl was munching her scone and butter. She was just busy thinking how rude he was, not to even have said good morning, when an abrupt remark from him caused her to look up. "'Will you be good enough?' he said suddenly to give me a description of the man who sat next to you just now, while you were having your cup of coffee and scone. Involuntarily, Polly turned her head towards the distant door, through which a man in a light overcoat was even now quickly passing. That man had certainly sat at the next table to hers, when she first sat down to her coffee and scone. He had finished his luncheon, whatever it was, a moment ago, had paid at the desk, and gone out. The incident did not appear to Polly as being of the slightest consequence. Therefore she did not reply to the rude old man, but shrugged her shoulders and called to the waitress to bring her bill. "'Do you know if he was tall, or short, dark, or fair?' continued the man in the corner, seemingly not the least disconcerted by the young girl's indifference. "'Can you tell me at all what he was like?' "'Of course I can,' rejoined Polly impatiently. "'But I don't see that my description of one of the customers of an ABC shop can have the slightest importance.' He was silent for a minute, while his nervous fingers— fumbled about in his capacious pockets in search of the inevitable piece of string. When he had found this necessary adjunct to thought, he viewed the young girl again through his half-closed lids, and added maliciously, "'But supposing it were of paramount importance that you should give an accurate description of a man who sat next to you for a half an hour to-day, how would you proceed?' "'I should say that he was of medium height. Five foot eight, nine, or ten, he interrupted quietly. "'How can one tell an inch or two? rejoined Polly crossly. He was between colors. "'What's that?' he inquired, blandly. "'Neither fair nor dark. His nose—well, what was his nose like? Will you sketch it? I am not an artist. His nose was fairly straight. His eyes—were neither dark nor light. His hair had the same striking peculiarity. He was neither short nor tall. His nose was neither aquiline or snub,' he recapitulated sarcastically. "'No,' she retorted. He was just ordinary-looking.' Would you know him again, say, to-morrow, and among a number of other men who were neither tall nor short, dark nor fair, aquiline or snub-nosed, etc.? I don't know. I might. He was certainly not striking enough to be specially remembered. Exactly, he said, while he leant forward excitingly, for all the world like a jack-in-the-box let loose. 
Precisely, and you are a journalist. Call yourself one, at least, and it should be part of your business to notice and describe people. I don't mean only the wonderful personage of the clear Saxon features, the fine blue eyes, the noble brow, and classic face, but the ordinary person, the person who represents ninety out of every hundred of his own kind, the average Englishman, say, of the middle classes, who is neither very tall nor very short, who wears a moustache which is neither fair nor dark, but which masks his mouth, and a top hat which hides the shape of his head and brow, a man, in fact, who dresses like hundreds of his fellow creatures, moves like them, speaks like them, has no peculiarity. Try to describe him, to recognize him, say, a week hence, among his other eighty-nine doubles. Worse still, to swear his life away, if he happened to be implicated in some crime, wherein your recognition of him would place the halter round his neck. Try that, I say, and having utterly failed, you will more readily understand how one of the greatest scoundrels unhung is still at large, and why the mystery on the underground railway has never been cleared up. I think it was the only time in my life that I was seriously tempted to give the police the benefit of my own views upon the matter. You see, though I admire the brute for his cleverness, I did not see that his being unpunished could possibly benefit anyone. In these days of tubes and motor traction of all kinds, the old-fashioned, best, cheapest, and quickest route to city and west end is often deserted, and the good old metropolitan railway carriages cannot at any time be said to be overcrowded. Anyway, when that particular train steamed into Allgate at about 4 p.m. on March 18th last, the first-class carriages were all but empty. The guard marched up and down the platform looking into all the carriages to see if anyone had left the halfpenny evening paper behind for him, and opening the door of one of the first-class compartments, he noticed a lady sitting in the further corner with her head turned away towards the window, evidently oblivious of the fact that on this line Aldgate is the terminal station. "'Where are you for, lady?' he said. The lady did not move, and the guard stepped into the carriage, thinking that perhaps the lady was asleep. He touched her arm lightly and looked into her face. In his own poetic language, he was struck all of a heap. In the glassy eyes, the ashen color of the cheeks, the rigidity of the head, there was the unmistakable look of death. Hastily the guard, having carefully locked the carriage door, summoned a couple of porters, and sent one of them off to the police station, and the other in search of the station-master. Fortunately, at this time of day, the up-platform is not very crowded, all the traffic tending westward in the afternoon. It was only when an inspector and two police constables, accompanied by a detective in plain clothes and a medical officer, appeared upon the scene and stood round a first-class railway compartment, that a few idlers realized that something unusual had occurred, and crowded round, eager and curious. Thus it was that the later editions of the evening papers, under the sensational heading, Mysterious Suicide on the Underground Railway, had already an account of the extraordinary event. The medical officer had very soon come to the decision that the guard had not been mistaken and that life was indeed extinct. The lady was young and must have been very pretty before the look of fright and horror had so terribly distorted her features. She was very elegantly dressed, and the more frivolous papers were able to give their feminine readers a detailed account of the unfortunate woman's gown, her shoes, hat, and gloves. It appears that one of the latter, the one on the right hand, was partly off, leaving the thumb and wrist bare. That hand held a small satchel, which the police opened, with a view to the possible identification of the deceased, but which was found to contain only a little loose silver, some smelling salts, and a small empty bottle, which was handed over to the medical officer for purposes of analysis. It was the presence of that small bottle which had caused the report to circulate freely 
that the mysterious case on the underground railway was one of suicide. Certain it was that neither about the lady's person nor in the appearance of the railway carriage was there the slightest sign of a struggle or even of resistance. Only the look in the poor woman's eyes spoke of sudden terror, of the rapid vision of an unexpected and violent death, which probably only lasted an infinitesimal fraction of a second, but which had left its indelible mark upon the face, otherwise so placid and so still. The body of the deceased was conveyed to the mortuary. So far, of course, not a soul had been able to identify her, or throw the slightest light upon the mystery which hung around her death. Against that, quite a crowd of idlers, genuinely interested or not, obtained admission to view the body, on the pretext of having lost or mislaid a relative or a friend. At about 8.30 p.m. a young man, very well dressed, drove up to the station in a hansom, and sent in his car to the superintendent. It was Mr. Hazeldine, shipping agent, of 11 Crown Lane, E.C., and number 19, Addison Row, Kensington. The young man looked in a pitiable state of mental distress. His hand clutched nervously a copy of the St. James's Gazette, which contained the fatal news. He said very little to the superintendent, except that a person who was very dear to him had not returned home that evening. He had not felt really anxious until half an hour ago, when suddenly he thought of looking at his paper. The description of the deceased lady, though vague, had terribly alarmed him. He had jumped into a hansom, and now begged permission to view the body, in order that his worst fears might be allayed. "'You know what followed, of course,' continued the man in the corner. The grief of the young man was truly pitiable. In the woman lying there in a public mortuary before him, Mr. Hazeldean had recognized his wife. "'I am waxing melodramatic,' said the man in the corner, who looked up at Polly with a mild and gentle smile, while his nervous fingers vainly endeavoured to add another knot on the scrappy bit of string with which he was continually playing. "'And I fear that the whole story savours of the penny novelette, but you must admit, and no doubt you remember, that it was an intensely pathetic and truly dramatic moment. The unfortunate young husband of the deceased lady was not much worried with questions that night. As a matter of fact, he was not in a fit condition to make any coherent statement. It was at the coroner's inquest on the following day that certain facts came to light, which for the time being seemed to clear up the mystery surrounding Mrs. Hazeldean's death, only to plunge that same mystery, later on, into denser gloom than before. The first witness at the inquest was, of course, Mr. Hazeldean himself. I think everyone's sympathy went out to the young man as he stood before the coroner and tried to throw what light he could upon the mystery. He was well dressed, as he had been the day before, but he looked terribly ill and worried, and no doubt the fact that he had not shaved gave his face a careworn and neglected air. It appears that he and the deceased had been married some six years or so, and that they had always been happy in their married life. They had no children. Mrs. Hazeldean seemed to enjoy the best of health till lately, when she had had a slight attack of influenza, in which Dr. Arthur Jones had attended her. The doctor was present at this moment, and would no doubt explain to the coroner and the jury whether he thought that Mrs. Hazeldean had the slightest tendency to heart disease, which might have had a sudden and fatal ending. The coroner was, of course, very considerate to the bereaved husband. He tried by circumlocution to get at the point he wanted, namely, Mrs. Hazeldean's mental condition lately. Mr. Hazeldean seemed loath to talk about this. No doubt he had been warned as to the existence of the small bottle found in his wife's satchel. "'It certainly did seem to me at times,' he at last reluctantly admitted, "'that my wife did not seem quite herself. She used to be very gay and bright, 
and lately I often saw her in the evening sitting, as if brooding over some matters, which evidently she did not care to communicate to me. Still the coroner insisted, and suggested the small bottle. I know, I know, replied the young man, with a short, heavy sigh. You mean, the question of suicide. I cannot understand it at all. It seems so sudden, and so terrible. She certainly had seemed listless and troubled lately, but only at times. And yesterday morning, when I went to business, she appeared quite herself again, and I suggested that we should go to the opera in the evening. She was delighted, I know, and told me she would do some shopping, and pay a few calls in the afternoon. Do you know at all where she intended to go when she got into the underground railway? Well, not with certainty. You see, she may have meant to get out at Baker Street and go down to Bond Street to do her shopping. Then again, she sometimes goes to a shop in St. Paul's Churchyard, in which case she would take a ticket to Aldersgate Street. But I cannot say. Now, Mr. Hazeldean, said the coroner at last very kindly, will you try to tell me if there was anything in Mrs. Hazeldean's life which you know of, which might in some measure explain the cause of the distressed state of mind which you yourself had noticed? Did there exist any financial difficulty which might have preyed upon Mrs. Hazeldean's mind? Was there any friend to whose intercourse with Mrs. Hazeldean you, er, uh, at any time took exception? In fact, added the coroner, as if thankful that he had got over an unpleasant moment, can you give me the slightest indication which would tend to confirm the suspicion that the unfortunate lady in a moment of mental anxiety or derangement, may have wished to take her own life? There was silence in the court for several moments. Mr. Hazeldean seemed to everyone there present to be laboring under some terrible moral doubt. He looked very pale and wretched, and twice attempted to speak before he at last said, in scarcely audible tones, No, there were no financial difficulties of any sort. My wife had an independent fortune of her own. She had no extravagant tastes. "'Nor any friend you at any time objected to?' insisted the coroner. "'Nor any friend I at any time objected to,' stammered the unfortunate young man, evidently speaking with an effort. "'I was present at the inquest,' resumed the man in the corner, after he had drunk a glass of milk and ordered another, and I can assure you that the most obtuse person there plainly realized that Mr. Hazeldean was telling a lie. It was pretty plain to the meanest intelligence that the unfortunate lady had not fallen into a state of morbid dejection for nothing, and that perhaps there existed a third person who could throw more light on her strange and sudden death than the unhappy, bereaved young widower. That the death was more mysterious even than it had at first appeared became very soon apparent. You read the case at the time, no doubt, and must remember the excitement in the public mind caused by the evidence of the two doctors. Dr. Arthur Jones, the lady's usual medical man, who had attended her in a last very slight illness, and who had seen her in a professional capacity fairly recently, declared most emphatically that Mrs. Hazeldean suffered no organic complaint which could possibly have been the cause of sudden death. Moreover, he had assisted Mr. Andrew Thornton, the district medical officer, in making a post-mortem examination, and together they had come to the conclusion that death was due to the action of prussic acid, which had caused instantaneous failure of the heart, but how the drug had been administered neither he nor his colleague were at present able to state. "'Do I understand, then, Dr. Jones, that the deceased died poisoned with prussic acid?' "'Such is my opinion,' replied the doctor. "'Did the bottle found in her satchel contain prussic acid?' "'It had contained some at one time, certainly.' "'In your opinion, then, the lady caused her own death by taking a dose of that drug?' "'Pardon me. I never suggested such a thing.' The lady died poisoned by the drug, 
but how the drug was administered we cannot say. By injection of some sort, certainly. The drug certainly was not swallowed. There was not a vestige of it in the stomach. Yes, added the doctor in reply to another question from the coroner. Death had probably followed the injection in this case almost immediately, say within a couple of minutes, or perhaps three. It was quite possible that the body would not have more than one quick and sudden convulsion, perhaps not that. Death in such cases is absolutely sudden and crushing. I don't think that at that time anyone in the room realized how important the doctor's statement was, a statement which, by the way, was confirmed in all its details by the district medical officer who had conducted the post-mortem. Mrs. Hazeldean had died suddenly from an injection of prussic acid, administered no one knew how or when. She had been traveling in a first-class railway carriage in a busy time of the day. That young and elegant woman must have had singular nerve and coolness to go through the process of a self-inflicted injection of a deadly poison in the presence of perhaps two or three other persons. Mind you, when I say that no one there realized the importance of the doctor's statement at that moment, I am wrong. There were three persons, who fully understood at once the gravity of the situation, and the astounding development which the case was beginning to assume. Of course, I should have put myself out of the question, added the weird old man, with inimitable self-conceit peculiar to himself. I guessed then and there, in a moment, where the police were going wrong, and where they would go on going wrong, until the mysterious death on the underground railway had sunk into oblivion, together with the other cases which they mismanage from time to time. I said there were three persons who understood the gravity of the two doctors' statements. The other two were, firstly, the detective who had originally examined the railway carriage, a young man of energy and plenty of misguided intelligence. The other was Mr. Hazeldean. At this point the interesting element of the whole story was first introduced into the proceedings, and this was done through the humble channel of Emma Funnel, Mrs. Hazeldean's maid, who, as far as was known then, was the last person who had seen the unfortunate lady alive and had spoken to her. "'Mrs. Hazeldean lunched at home,' explained Emma, who was shy and spoke almost in a whisper. "'She seemed well and cheerful. She went out at about half-past three, and told me she was going to Spence's in St. Paul's Churchyard to try on her new tailor-made gown. Mrs. Hazeldean had meant to go there in the morning, but was prevented as Mr. Errington called. "'Mr. Errington?' asked the coroner casually. Who is Mr. Errington? But this Emma found difficult to explain. Mr. Errington was Mr. Errington, that's all. Mr. Errington was a friend of the family. He lived in a flat in the Albert Mansions. He very often came to Addison Row and generally stayed late. Pressed still further with questions, Emma at last stated that latterly Mrs. Hazeldean had been to the theatre several times with Mr. Errington, and that on those nights the master looked very gloomy and was very cross recalled the young widower was strangely reticent. He gave forth his answers very grudgingly, and the coroner was evidently absolutely satisfied with himself at the marvellous way in which, after a quarter of an hour of firm yet very kind questionings, he had elicited from the witness what information he wanted. Mr. Errington was a friend of his wife. He was a gentleman of means, and seemed to have a great deal of time at his command. He himself did not particularly care about Mr. Errington, but he certainly had never made any observations to his wife on the subject. "'But who is Mr. Errington?' repeated the coroner once more. "'What does he do? What is his business or profession?' "'He has no business or profession.' "'What is his occupation, then?' "'He has no special occupation. He has ample private means. But he has a great and a very absorbing hobby. 
What is that? He spends all his time in chemical experiments, and is, I believe, as an amateur, a very distinguished toxicologist. End of chapter 10「Chapter Eleven of the Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzi. Chapter Eleven. Mr. Errington. Did you ever see Mr. Errington, the gentleman so closely connected with the mysterious death on the Underground Railway? asked the man in the corner as he placed one or two of his little snapshot photos before Miss Polly Burton. There he is, to the very life. Fairly good-looking, a pleasant face enough, but ordinary, absolutely ordinary. It was the absence of any peculiarity which very nearly, but not quite, placed the halter around Mr. Errington's neck. But I am going too fast, and you will lose the thread. The public, of course, never heard how it actually came about that Mr. Errington, the wealthy bachelor of Albert Mansions, of the Grosvenor and other young dandies' clubs, one fine day, found himself before the magistrates at Bow Street, charged with being concerned in the death of Mary Beatrice Hazeldean, late of number 19, Addison Row. I can assure you, both press and public were literally flabbergasted. You see, Mr. Errington was a well-known and a very popular member of a certain smart section of London society. He was a constant visitor at the opera, the racecourse, the park, and the Carlton. He had a great many friends, and there was, consequently, quite a large attendance at the police court that morning. What had transpired was this. After the very scrappy bits of evidence which came to light at the inquest, two gentlemen bethought themselves that perhaps they had some duty to perform towards the state and the public generally. Accordingly, they had come forward, offering to throw what light they could upon the mysterious affair on the Underground Railway. The police naturally felt that their information, such as it was, came rather late in the day, but as it proved of paramount importance, and the two gentlemen, moreover, were of an undoubtedly good position in the world, they were thankful for what they could get, and acted accordingly. They accordingly brought Mr. Errington up before the magistrate on a charge of murder. The accused looked pale and worried when I first caught sight of him in the court that day, which was not to be wondered at, considering the terrible position in which he found himself. He had been arrested at Marseilles, where he was preparing to start for Colombo. I don't think he realized how terrible his position really was until later in the proceedings, when all the evidence relating to the arrest had been heard, and Emma Funnel had repeated her statement as to Mr. Errington's call at 19 Addison Row in the morning, and Mrs. Hazeldine starting off for St. Paul's Churchyard at 3.30 in the afternoon. Mr. Hazeldine had nothing to add to the statements he had made at the coroner's inquest. He had last seen his wife alive on the morning of the fatal day. She had seemed very well and cheerful. I think everyone present understood that he was trying to say as little as possible that could in any way couple his deceased wife's name with that of the accused. And yet, from the servant's evidence, it undoubtedly leaked out that Mrs. Hazeldine, who was young, pretty, and evidently fond of admiration, had once or twice annoyed her husband by her somewhat open, yet perfectly innocent, flirtation with Mr. Errington. I think everyone was most agreeably impressed by the widower's moderate and dignified attitude. You will see his photo there, among this bundle. That is just how he appeared in court, in deep black, of course, but without any sign of ostentation in his mourning. He had allowed his beard to grow lately, and wore it closely cut in a point. After his evidence the sensation of the day occurred. A tall, dark-haired man, with the word city written metaphorically all over him, had kissed the book, and was waiting to tell the truth, and nothing but the truth. He gave his name as Andrew Campbell, 
head of the firm of Campbell & Company Brokers of Thorgmorton Street. In the afternoon of March 18th, Mr. Campbell, traveling on the Underground Railway, had noticed a very pretty woman in the same carriage as himself. She had asked him if she was in the right train for Aldersgate. Mr. Campbell replied in the affirmative, and then buried himself in the stock exchange quotations of his evening paper. At Gower Street, a gentleman in a tweed suit and a bowler hat got into the carriage and took a seat opposite the lady. She seemed very much astonished at seeing him, but Mr. Andrew Campbell did not recollect the exact words she said. The two talked to one another a good deal, and certainly the lady appeared animated and cheerful. Witness took no notice of them, he was very much engrossed in some calculations, and finally got out at Farringdon Street. He noticed that the man in the tweed suit also got out close behind him, having shaken hands with the lady, and said in a pleasant way, Au revoir, don't be late tonight. Mr. Campbell did not hear the lady's reply, and soon lost sight of the man in the crowd. Everyone was on tenterhooks, and eagerly waiting for the palpitating moment when witness would describe and identify the man who last had seen and spoken to the unfortunate woman, within five minutes, probably, of her strange and unaccountable death. Personally, I knew what was coming before the Scotch stockbroker spoke. I could have jotted down the graphic and lifelike description he would give of a probable murderer. It would have fitted equally well the man who sat and had luncheon at this table just now. It would have certainly described five out of every ten young Englishmen you know. The individual was of medium height. He wore a moustache, which was not very fair, nor yet very dark. His hair was between colours. He wore a bowler hat and a tweed suit, and— And that was all. Mr. Campbell might perhaps know him again, but then again he might not. He was not paying much attention. The gentleman was sitting on the same side of the carriage as himself, and he had his hat on all the time. He himself was busy with his newspaper. Yes, he might know him again, but he really could not say. Mr. Andrew Campbell's evidence was not worth very much, you will say. No, it was not in itself, and it would not have justified any arrest were it not for the additional statements made by Mr. James Verner, manager of Messrs. Rodney & Company, Color Printers. Mr. Verner is a personal friend of Mr. Andrew Campbell, and it appears that at Farringdon Street, where he was waiting for his train, he saw Mr. Campbell get out of a first-class railway carriage. Mr. Verner spoke to him for a second, and then, just as the train was moving off, he stepped into the same compartment which had just been vacated by the stockbroker and the man in the tweed suit. He vaguely recollects a lady sitting in the opposite corner to his own, with her face turned away from him, apparently asleep, but he paid no special attention to her. He was like nearly all businessmen when they are travelling, engrossed in his paper. Presently a special quotation interested him. He wished to make a note of it, took out a pencil from his waistcoat pocket, and seeing a clean piece of pasteboard on the floor, he picked it up, and scribbled on it the memorandum which he wished to keep. He then slipped the card into his pocket-book. "'It was only two or three days later,' added Mr. Verner, in the midst of breathless silence, "'that I had occasion to refer to those same notes again.' In the meanwhile, the papers had been full of the mysterious death on the Underground Railway, and the names of those connected with it were pretty familiar to me. It was therefore with much astonishment that on looking at the pasteboard which I had casually picked up in the railway carriage, I saw the name on it, Frank Errington. There was no doubt that the sensation in court was almost unprecedented. Never since the days of the Fenchurch Street mystery and the trial of Smethurst had I seen so much excitement. Mind you, I was not excited. I knew by now every detail of that crime— as if I had committed it myself. In fact, I could not have done it better, although I have been a student of crime for many years now. Many people here, his friends mostly, believe that Errington was doomed. I think he thought so too, for I could see that his face was terribly white, and he now and then passed his tongue over his lips, as if they were parched. You see, he was in an awful dilemma. 
a perfectly natural one, by the way, of being absolutely incapable of proving an alibi. The crime, if crime there was, had been committed three weeks ago. A man about town like Mr. Frank Errington might remember that he spent certain hours of a special afternoon at his club or in the park, but it is very doubtful in nine cases out of ten if he can find a friend who could positively swear as to having seen him there. No, no, Mr. Errington was in a tight corner, and he knew it. You see, there were, besides the evidence, two or three circumstances which did not improve matters for him. His hobby in the direction of toxicology, to begin with. The police had found in his room every description of poisonous substances, including prussic acid. Then again, that journey to Marseille, the start for Colombo, was, though perfectly innocent, a very unfortunate one. Mr. Errington had gone on an aimless voyage, but the public thought that he had fled, terrified at his own crime. Sir Arthur Inglewood, however, here again displayed his marvellous skill on behalf of his client, by the masterly way in which he literally turned all the witnesses for the Crown inside out. Having first got Mr. Andrew Campbell to state positively that in the accused he certainly did not recognise the man in the tweed suit, the eminent lawyer, after twenty minutes' cross-examination, had so completely upset the stockbroker's equanimity that it is very likely he would not have recognised his own office-boy. But through all his flurry and all his annoyance, Mr. Andrew Campbell remained very sure of one thing, namely, that the lady was alive and cheerful, and talking pleasantly with the man in the tweed suit, up to the moment when the latter, having shaken hands with her, left her with a pleasant, Au revoir, don't be late to-night. He had heard neither scream nor struggle, and in his opinion, if the individual in the tweed suit had administered a dose of poison to his companion, it must have been with her own knowledge and free will. And the lady in the train most emphatically neither looked nor spoke like a woman prepared for a sudden and violent death. Mr. James Verner, against that, swore equally positively that he had stood in full view of the carriage door from the moment that Mr. Campbell got out, until he himself stepped into the compartment, that there was no one else in that carriage between Farringdon Street and Aldgate, and that the lady, to the best of his belief, had made no movement during the whole of that journey. "'No, Frank Errington was not committed for trial on the capital charge,' said the man in the corner, with one of his sardonic smiles, thanks to the cleverness of Sir Arthur Inglewood, his lawyer, he absolutely denied his identity with the man in the tweed suit, and swore he had not seen Mrs. Hazeldean since eleven o'clock in the morning of that fatal day. There was no proof that he had. Moreover, according to Mr. Campbell's opinion, the man in the tweed suit was in all probability not the murderer. Common sense would not admit that a woman could have a deadly poison injected into her without her knowledge while chatting pleasantly to her murderer. Mr. Errington lives abroad now. He is about to marry— I don't think any of his real friends for a moment believe that he committed the dastardly crime. The police think they know better. They do know this much, that it could not have been a case of suicide, that if the man who undoubtedly travelled with Mrs. Hazeldean on that fatal afternoon had no crime upon his conscience, he would long ago have come forward and thrown what light he could upon the mystery. As to who that man was, the police in their blindness have not the faintest doubt. Under the unshakable belief that Errington is guilty, they have spent the last few months in unceasing labour to try and find further and stronger proofs of his guilt. But they won't find them, because there are none. There are no positive proofs against the actual murderer, for he was one of those clever blackguards who think of everything, foresee every eventuality, and know human nature well, and can foretell exactly what evidence will be brought against them and act accordingly. This blackguard from the first kept the figure, the personality of Frank Errington, before his mind, Frank Errington was the dust which the scoundrel threw metaphorically in the eyes of the police, and you must admit that he succeeded in blinding them, to the extent even of making them entirely forget the one simple little sentence, 
overheard by Mr. Andrew Campbell, and which was, of course, the clue to the whole thing, the only slip the cunning rogue made. Au revoir, don't be late tonight. Mrs. Hazeldean was going that night to the opera with her husband. You are astonished, he added with a shrug of the shoulders. You do not see the tragedy yet, as I have seen it before me all along, the frivolous young wife, the flirtation with the friend, all a blind, all a pretense. I took the trouble which the police should have taken immediately, of finding out something about the finances of the Hazeldean menage. Money is in nine cases out of ten the keynote to a crime. I found that the will of Mary Beatrice Hazeldean had been proved by the husband, her sole executor, the estate being sworn at fifteen thousand pounds. I found out, moreover, that Mr. Edward Sholto Hazeldean was a poor shipper's clerk when he married the daughter of a wealthy builder in Kensington, and then I made note of the fact that the disconsolate widower had allowed his beard to grow since the death of his wife. "'There's no doubt that he was a clever rogue,' added the strange creature, leaning excitedly over the table and peering into Polly's face. "'Do you know how that deadly poison was injected into the poor woman's system? By the simplest of all means, one known to every scoundrel in southern Europe, a ring, yes, a ring, which has a tiny hollow needle capable of holding a sufficient quantity of prussic acid to have killed two persons instead of one. The man in the tweed suit shook hands with his fair companion. Probably she hardly felt the prick, not sufficiently in any case to make her utter a scream. And, mind you, the scoundrel had every facility, through his friendship with Mr. Errington, of procuring the poison he required, not to mention his friend's visiting card. We cannot gauge how many months ago he began to try and copy Frank Errington in his style of dress, the cut of his moustache, his general appearance, making the change probably so gradual that no one in his own entourage would notice it. He selected for his model a man of his own height and build, with the same coloured hair. "'But there was the terrible risk of being identified by his fellow traveller in the underground,' suggested Polly. "'Yes, there certainly was that risk. He chose to take it, and he was wise. He reckoned that several days would in any case elapse before that person, who, by the way, was a businessman absorbed in his newspaper, would actually see him again. The great secret of successful crime is to study human nature, added the man in the corner, as he began looking for his hat and coat. But Edward Hazeldean knew it well. But the ring? He may have bought it when he was on his honeymoon, he suggested with a grim chuckle. The tragedy was not planned in a week. It may have taken years to mature. But you will own that there goes a frightful scoundrel unhung. I have left you his photograph, as he was a year ago, and as he is now. You will see he has shaved his beard again, but also his moustache. I fancy he is a friend now of Mr. Andrew Campbell. He left Miss Polly Burton wondering, not knowing what to believe. And that is how she missed her appointment with Mr. Richard Frobisher, of the London Mail, to go and see Maud Allen dance at the Palace Theatre that afternoon. End of chapter 11「Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.